1: I've been dying to ask you this question. You got out September 3rd, 2001. A week later, September 11th happens. The towers go down. What is the first thing that went through your head? If you have one piece of advice for
2: the kid aspiring to be an SF operator. Selection isn't an assessment of what you're actually doing. I want to take a call. And um, You take calls on your podcast? That's I cool. take calls. What's up, brother? Kebler, you son of a bitch. It was from an operation where they had killed this bad guy and they took his leg.
1: official we're up and running this is episode 001. I want to personally welcome everyone to the Sean Ryan show our first guest today is Mike Glover he's a badass operator a former Green Beret we've worked together known each other for a long time I asked him some really tough questions that I think you guys are really gonna like If you're watching this on YouTube and you want to listen, please head over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button, give us a rating. We want to make this motherfucker go apeshit. All right, without further ado, welcome to the show, Mike Glover. All right, Mike. Welcome to
2: my show. How do you like Tennessee? I love it, man. It's beautiful. Thanks for having me out here. It's amazing. I've never been here. Um, Never. I don't think I've ever been to Tennessee. I've been to the border with North Carolina and Tennessee. Doing some cross-border ops. Cross-border ops behind (laughs) friendly lines. But it's beautiful, man. I love it. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure, man. I've had a really good fucking time since you've been up here and it's great catching up with you you know the last time i saw you we were in yemen and uh getting shot at we didn't really get to know each other out there and and uh started listening to your podcast and we kind of kept in touch a little bit maybe once or twice a year but we got a lot of shit in common man I mean, showed up, and uh, the first thing we did is go look for some treasures at the antique shops.
2: Yeah, I didn't realize how much we had in common. You know, you're obviously half Japanese, I'm half Korean, so we get the Asian thing in common. Um, I'm also a big antiquer. I've always been. Uh, I don't know if isolationist is part of the, what we have in common but I'm about off-grid living just getting away from people. And yeah man, it was it was Yemen and you had that assassination attempt and it was a pretty big deal getting shot up and we QRF'd you and it was a good day. I mean, it was a good day that you didn't get hurt. Yeah. When you came <laughs> back. Good day to get
1: compromised. But uh, yeah, that was that was a weird trip. But um well, we're out of that now and and you're here and yeah you know we got we we're talking about isolating ourselves and i i mean i think a lot of us do that one thing i also notice is how giving you are and right now you got a toy drive going on so for any of you guys out there that want to donate mike's got a toy drive i want to bring this up now so i don't forget but uh, i think that's just really fucking cool that um that you do those kind of things and and you are constantly giving back and
2: that's cool man we, we always try to give back any way we can I mean we've, we've probably given in excess of fifty thousand dollars last year to charities to fifty
1: thousand mm-hmm. dollars
2: charities to men and women who have died in the line of service whether that's police military first responders a lot of it we don't even advertise that we do it um But we leverage the community that we have and crowdsource from like-minded people who want to help people out and yeah i know you've done that before but it's it's a huge thing for us and every holiday season we like to do the toys it's the one instance you know i'm not a big materialistic kind of person Mm -hmm. but if a kid who's in a bad situation which we all have seen that or experienced it ourselves if that could bring a little joy during the holiday season, which is a tough time for a lot of families, then, you know, so be it. We'll raise a whole bunch of toys and, and give them to less fortunate people. That's
1: awesome. Well, when's the deadline to get the toys to you?
2: Um, honestly, the, there is no deadline. I'll hand deliver them myself. If, if uh, people want to donate toys, they could send them to our address. It's on philcraftsurvival.com, um, as long as it's before Christmas. Cool. And then after the fact... It, just stay tuned to the channels because we're always doing something. Right on, man. Well,
1: speaking of Christmas, what is the one thing you
2: want this year more than anything? You know, I'm, it's the first time. I mean, it's not the first time, but it's solidified now. It's the first time where I'm good, man. I don't want anything. You don't want anything. I've got everything. You have everything. Look, my favorite, some of my favorite things to do are the freest things to do. Okay. Picking up rocks. I, I rock hound, so if I see cool rocks, I pick them up and I put them on my shelf. Well, you did steal a big bag of mushrooms from my property down there. I harvest mushrooms, <laughs> and I, st- I stole a bag of uh, turkey tail mushrooms from your yard. Um, I hope that makes it through the airport. I'm going to try to fly with it. Well, you know. We'll see. The only thing could do is arrest me. Well,
1: speaking of Christmas, I, even though you don't want anything, I got you a little... Gift here. Ooh, okay. So, oh. any guesses? Go ahead.
2: What do you so got? So this is a box of milk duds. Is it? <laughs> is it? Is it? It's something. Man, this is a lot of weight. I don't know. Okay, now all I'm right. Open it, a, it. All right, here we go. Open that
1: motherfucker up.
2: Here we go. Is it going to punch me in the face? No. All right. It's not a dick in the box or anything. Man, look at you. Hey. I should have guessed. Just a a little something for the ride home. Thanks, man. Yeah. This is 10 more pounds I don't need. uh, That's going to be on my ass. Oh, this is awesome.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. I saw you carry them for your EDC, so I figured I'd get you, you know. I do. I absolutely
2: do. A bigger pack for your... These will not be donated. These Uh will be (laughs) mine. I'll I'll selfishly take these. Gummy bears and milk duds.
1: Right on. Well, let's just do a quick overview of, uh, you know, how you grew up, and then we'll get into your military career a little bit. And then uh, I really am excited to talk about field craft. But, you know, where did you grow up? What was your family life like? Do you have any brothers and sisters?
2: So I was... Uh, Born in a military installation in California, Fort Ord, California. My dad had already been in the military for a year or two, and I was born in a military family. My dad was in the Army. My uncle was in the Navy. Uh, I have a great-great-grandfather who was a general in the Civil War. It's always been part of our uh, DNA. I mean, it's just... You had a grandfather in the Civil War. Yeah, a Confederate uh, grandfather, uh, General Hood. No shit. Yeah, he was a, he was a boss. He made general at the age of thirty seven. He uh, lost his leg in Gettysburg. Lost his arm in another uh, battle. Um, he was a boss. He he went to West Point. He was uh, known as a battlefield general. Like he was the guy that did a lot of ops. And he looks batshit crazy if you see him (laughs) online he looks he looks like a boss but you know he had a pretty sad story he he eventually died um and then all of his kids were basically harvested out in the adoption system holy shit um but my family on on my dad's side the white side uh, all grew up in atlanta georgia and we grew up in the rural south i mean my my family's from georgia and they all migrated <laughs> migrated crossed the border into florida and you know I, I grew up in daytona beach florida for the most part and i say for the most part because i, I was all over the place mm-hmm. i lived my first four years in life in germany where we were stationed um, my mom and dad separated when i was about four or five she went to north carolina my dad went to Florida. And so I spent time between Florida and North Carolina with two separated parents, kind of just living life growing up. Um, I had a good upbringing. We were poor as shit. Uh, I remember not even one year I couldn't even afford, my mom couldn't afford to buy me shoes. So I wore flip-flops the entire school year. Uh, My mom didn't even have a car growing up. We walked everywhere. Uh, So, you know, sad stories of... You know, my life was hard. I walked to the grocery store, and we had to walk miles to get groceries. And it's stereotypical in in American society, but it was true. I mean, we we just didn't have a lot. My dad was bouncing around um, from apartment complexes to trailers. Uh, I remember when I was 15 years old, laying in my bedroom in my mobile home and being able to touch all the walls with my arms and legs. Uh that's how small it was. Wow. Um so yeah, didn't have much, but we were we were rich because um we didn't feel like we were poor. You all know, growing, love, huh? All love, man. My my dad's a real loving guy. And he tucked me in every night, he read me bedtime stories, he told me he loved me. Um he was empathetic, he was a real compassionate and humble person. And growing up with that, uh, was real impactful. Cause I understood what emotional intelligence was. Um, he was dumb when it came to women, he was a womanizer made a lot of fucking mistakes. Like most men do. Um, my mom was a disciplinary, you know, she, she ruled with a Kung Fu grip. <laughs> she used to beat my ass. And I needed that. I needed the balance of both yeah. to be able to be successful. And luckily for me, I had I just had good parents um, and, and a really decent upbringing. Um, so, yeah, lived, lived that way until I eventually ran away when I was 16 years old. And, and I wrote my grandma a letter because I was living with her at the time. Where did you run to? Down the road. Okay, I did that too. <laughs> like a couple miles. <laughs> but I, lived, I actually lived in a motel for on and off for almost a year. What kind of, was it like? It was a shitty shit little hotel pay
1: by the hour motel. Basically, but you weren't having any fun in there, were you?
2: It, it sucked. <laughs> it was a sh- little shit motel, and I thought I was living um, baller life because I was living on my own. But it, it was it sucked. I uh, I'll never forget. Like I was leaving the motel to go to work, and it was too far to ride a bike because it was I mean it was miles. It was like twelve miles away, and so. I decided to start taking the bus, but I had to wake up like an hour early. And I was getting on the sidewalk to get on the bus stop. And this is just me being 16, living on my own, um, wearing my little get up for the job I had. And a Jeep drove by full of like teenage kids and they threw a Wendy's flurry or whatever, the, the Frosty. And it hit me in the chest and exploded all over me. Holy shit. And I remember, like, I got hit with it, and I just continued to walk, and I just sat on the the park bench, you know, the bus stop bench, just waiting for the bus, like, holy fuck, man. People suck. Yeah. And it just was, like, man, this is my life now. Um, so I knew I had to do something different, and so I did. I joined the, I joined the Army uh, at the age of 17.
1: You joined the Army at the age of 17? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No shit. Where did right. you enlist? I enlisted in Jacksonville, Florida, in the infantry. Um, did you have any, at 17 years old, you who signed for you?
2: So my grandmother signed for me to go in the military because she was my legal shit. guardian. And um, so did you? Did, did you have any guidance or did
1: you just, I mean, that's what you knew you wanted to do and you just made it happen? You just went there you didn't talk to anybody it was just you and the recruiter or
2: did you have a mentor i didn't really have a mentor Uh, i had you know i had uh, some decent recruiters they weren't the best but i knew about the military i mean i played army with my cousins growing up my entire life like if you were to ask back then even as kids who was the most likely to go in the military i mean i slept with a a glock bb gun underneath my pillow (laughs) um I planned complex raids and, and operations uh, as a child, so I already knew. In fact, I made my dad a bet that I was gonna go into Special Forces, I think I was 10 years old, um, where I was interested in the Navy, I was interested in Green Berets, and I asked him, obviously being biased, who was the best, and he said, Green Berets, and so I said, I wanna be that, and I, I bet him. I actually bet him an MP5. You like, bet him an MP5? I said. If I get in, you're gonna give me an MP5 SD because I was fascinated with guns. I had I read about guns and and uh, had magazines and books. And uh, I always say, yeah, he still owes me an MP5 SD. I never, was just gonna ask, where never is paid it? paid up. He'd have to sell his mobile home to get that. Well, yeah,
1: those are pretty. What are those like, twenty-five grand? At now? least, at least. Yeah, that's a good bet, though an mp5 nice solid so you still want one you could have said
2: that and you know maybe it would have shown up for Christmas that would see yeah if I can get an mp5 SD I've actually tried I've reached out to a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> I need an SD maybe we could do a little barter here I even I don't I don't even need the SD model if you're listening to this look I don't need the tax stamp I don't want the drama just get me the the standard model right on man. like the uh MP5.
1: with a special selector switch. Yeah, yeah, right, right on. Yeah, with the uh Ziploc bag. Would you rather have an MP5 or an MP7?
2: Um honestly because I'm more nostalgic and uh old school, I'll do the MP5. All right. All right. Like MP7's don't impress me. I mean it's it looks cool cuz you guys made it look cool, but outside of that I've shot them and used them in combat and they're not that exciting you have used those in combat yeah i've carried mp And you don't time. like it or i've carried mp7 i've ne- i've never killed a bad guy with one i carried it on like psd okay kind of stuff um because they conceal a lot better mm-hmm. obviously than an m4 um but the units and special operations units that i've been in guys don't you typically run them no oh, shit i've heard guys rave about them but... yeah the navy's big about them i mean yeah. entire organizations and troops are using uh, those and i'm sure that's for a good reason yeah I, I mean i do think that would have been the perfect
1: weapon for what me and you were doing together 100 but a lot better than what we were using 100 but i agree with that i was wondering why we didn't have those available and it is pretty fucking cool looking yeah I mean, absolutely you know that's half of it right but uh all right so 17 join the military go to infantry and how was that?
2: Was it everything you had hoped and dreamed? It's funny because I remember the first, I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, infantry basic training, and I joined with an 11 x-ray option 40 ranger contract, which means that in basic training, I would be plucked uh, after AIT, advanced individual training, and then I would go to ranger regiment. And so that was the plan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the option 40 contract, contract guarantees you a ranger slot. Like the, the ranger instructors are going to come, pick you up, and you're going to go to ranger battalion. I didn't think basic training was hard. I thought it was easy. As a 17-year-old with a myriad of life experiences that were a little bit more difficult than most, it wasn't hard for me. I mean, I, mean, I remember distinctly, because I was a squad leader in basic training, either threatening or punching or like checking dudes, grown men who were crying, who wanted to kill themselves, who wanted to get, you know, leave, get back to their girlfriends or the wives and thinking to myself like, holy crap, man, this is like at the time, 15 weeks of your life. And you guys can't suck it up to, to do a job to get trained up in the the military. And so I band together with a whole bunch of dudes that were just solid dudes that, eventually went into special operations for the most part um but was a, well, what was unfortunate is i got selected to be 11 hotel which what is be- a, what is an 11 hotel it's like it, basically it's an infantryman who drives who who rolls in a humvee okay. so you learn heavy weapons like 50 cal the tow missile system um and, and you're considered anti-tank and I, I actually liked it because I was like, oh, man, I, ain't got, I don't have to walk. I mean, I, I can have, <laughs> like, I'm a mobility expert because I learned the GMV or the Humvee at the time, and I thought it was real cool, except that when they selected us, they did it randomly. I mean, they said, hey, you guys are Bravos, which is just basic infantry. You guys are Charlies, which is mortarmen, and you guys are hotels, which is uh, uh, heavy weapons. And then when the recruiter or the ranger instructors came to pick us up, I was, you know, I was fabric gasted I was just like, what the fuck's going on? Like, why am I not getting picked up? And they said, well, there's no 11 hotels in Ranger Regiment, which I was like, okay, that's not my problem. Well, it was my problem. And so I didn't get to go to Ranger Regiment like I was supposed to. I oh, still have shit. the contract, uh, option 11 X-ray, option 40. And that was just their way of downsizing. I mean, I'm assuming incentivizing people and then at basic training, basically fucking them, And they told me I couldn't go, and I, I didn't have any other options. Shit. So I picked up the, a phone and called my uncle at the time, who was a sergeant major in the infantry, and said, hey, I don't know what's going on, but this has happened. And within, I would say, 48 hours, they changed my MOS to 11 Bravo in basic training. Which um, is? Basic infantry, man. Okay. And from 11 Hotel, which is now my primary and my secondary is 11 Hotel. And they said, we're going to send you to, to a unit called the Old Guard, the 3rd Infantry Regiment. And when you get there, you're going to put a 4187 to go to Ranger Regiment. I didn't even know what the hell the Old Guard was, the 3rd Infantry Regiment. I didn't, had no idea. Um, went and saw the recruiter. A civilian came in and crossed out 11 Hotel, wrote 11 Bravo, put his initials. And I was like, damn, it's that easy? um and then i went and uh went and in processed uh, the 3rd infantry regiment in fort myer virginia hmm.
1: <clears throat> how i mean that had to be just fucking gut wrenching to i mean your dream was to become a ranger at that time correct mm-hmm. and they just fucking yanked it right out from underneath you yeah and i mean how long i mean did you mope around about it or did you say, fuck it, this is my new direction and I'm gonna kick its ass?
2: So I knew I, knew I had a timeline where I, you know 4187 back in the day was the way in which you submitted paperwork to transfer units and it worked typically. Um, it didn't work for me, uh, long story short, but I knew when I got there as an E1 that I had to, number one, my uncle had been in the old guard, he had been a tomb guard. At the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, so uh, I had sh- big shoes to fill, and so when I showed up, I was all about the grind, man. I didn't show up. I didn't show up day one in the military to, you know, to hang out with chicks, to mm-hmm. get drunk at bars, and to fuck off. My entire objective was to go in special operations, and I didn't give a fuck about anything else. So when I showed up, I went to work. Uh, I immediately, as a private got my expert infantry badge, which is pretty rare as a PV one. In fact, when I tried out to get my expert infantry badge, me and my platoon leader were the only ones in my platoon that got our expert infantry badges, um, which is basically a a test, a common core task, um, and they assess you Mm -hmm. and then, uh, do a ruck march and all this stuff. When I got back from that, uh, I went to airborne school. What year is this roughly? 97. Okay. When I got back from that, I went to ranger school, Everybody's like, You're going to ranger school? I was like, Fuck yeah, I'm going to ranger school. Um, I just distinctly remember being different than everybody else I was around. Friday night, dudes were shotgunning corps lights in the barracks. I was putting on a rucksack to go out. And that's no exaggeration. Like and and I didn't falter. I don't I, I don't think I ever once in that unit drank at all. No shit. So you're about
1: what, eighteen at this time? Eighteen. Yeah. <clears throat> And, and you didn't give in to
2: any of the pressure? None. And wow. they, they gave me a hard time, and I was like, fuck you. I'm not interested. That's impressive. Um, so when they were going out getting wasted, they would see me rucking across the Potomac River, going to Georgetown, carrying a rucksack. And I went to re- ranger school um, as an 18-year-old, graduated as a 19-year-old, went straight through, no issues. Um, got back, and then I uh, assessed, it's a selection process, to become a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Which, to this day, is the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, that training to become a tomb guard took me nine months. Holy shit. To earn my tomb identification badge, which I which I have. And I, I spent the rest of that time guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns. Um, which is great, because I didn't have to fucking deal with people or dumbasses. I kind of got to do my own thing. And, um, yeah, I... I finished up my infantry time as a tomb guard trainer. I trained two tomb guards for a year. No shit. Yep. So, <clears throat> so
1: you, and you became obviously, you know, the best at that with, I, I find that impressive that you, your primary focus was to get into special operations. Yet you still took that job sounds like extremely seriously as you know I mean it's a fucking honor to you know even see that but um I mean that's doing something that you weren't set on doing and kicking its
2: ass I mean that uh is pretty pretty fucking commendable yeah I didn't have a choice in it so the the path the army is like that it's a big institution so you don't have a lot of choice a lot of opportunity And so my idea was if I, you know, given what I was given, I have a choice in which to be successful and at that time be all I could be in the Army. So I chose that. Wow. So moving forward. Well, moving forward, I actually had a break in service and decided to get the fuck out. What day did you get out? September 3rd of 2001. I've been dying to ask you this
1: question. You got out September 3rd, 2001. A week later, September 11th happens, the towers go down. What is the first thing that went through your head? Knowing, you know, your primary mission was, or your primary goal was to become a Green Beret And special operations, kicking fucking doors in, going to combat, that whole lifestyle, and then you immediately know we're at war. Yeah, it was- uh, And you're not in
2: it. The biggest kick in the balls that I've ever had because, I mean, backing up a little bit, I had the option to re-enlist. Obviously, I was on retention's radar for like, hey, this guy's an Airborne Ranger qualified dude. He's an E-5. I made, I made sergeant when I was 20 years old. Um, and so I was a team leader in the infantry, had good NCOERs. And so it's like, hey, man, this guy is a good guy we want to keep in the military. But I told them that I want sniper school and I want halo school en route to 18th Airborne Corps LURS or Long Range Reconnaissance or Ranger Battalion. Um, and I was adamant about that. I actually went into a Sergeant Major's office who was the military district of Washington. So he's was a command sergeant major. He knew my uncle, and he said, Mike, what can I give you to stay in? I said, this is the things that I want. And he goes, which I found later found out later is true, Halo or free fall school is not a reenlistment option, and it's not. Back then, you didn't, you didn't have a lot of incentive for staying in, so they used to give you schools to stay in. Mm-hmm. And I said, Sergeant Major, well, you, we can make it an option, right, because that, that's what I want. He's like, Mike, I can't do that for you. I mean, I'll call and I'll try. And he did, but it's not an option. So a CSM even can't make it an option. And so I said, okay, that's, that's my, I gave the options on the table and they decided not to facilitate what I wanted as a dream. And so I decided to get out. I had a buddy who re-enlisted with me that I went to Ranger school with or re-enlisted without me. And he went to 3rd Ranger Battalion he jumped into Afghanistan on October 19th, 2001. Son of a bitch. Um, And so the moment it happened, I was actually in college, and I had gotten out of the military, obviously, but I had transitioned into the National Guard component. Okay. So I'm sitting in a chow hall at Fayetteville Technical Community College getting my associate's degree so I could further my education. And saw the events happen, I did some crazy shit, man. I, I immediately started making phone calls. I went home. I packed a duffel bag of my equipment. I, I threw my battle dress uniforms, my camo uniforms, in the, the washer and then dried them and was making calls like, what are we doing here? What's happening? And I was, at the time, I was in 30th Heavy Armor Separate, Separate Brigade and I was in the Scout platoon and I was a team leader. So I had a little minuscule position mm. that could affect something. <clears throat> but I knew we were going to war. So I had a choice to make, which is real easy, which was I'm going back in the fucking military. Yeah. So on September 12th, like zero nine in the morning, I'm making phone calls to get back in.
1: I mean, that had to be like, at the exact same time that's happening, two completely separate emotions. One, you know, tragedy. We'd just been attacked and a lot of people died on the other hand you know what that what comes after and everything you've ever wanted to do since you said you were 10 years old becomes a reality and you're not there i mean that had to be was one more overpowering than the other
2: yeah it was i mean i felt for the people obviously but i knew that i was in a unique position to make a difference in the fight Mm -hmm. because i was a i was an nco i mean i was a non-commissioned officer and i knew that there was an opportunity for me to get in the military and and fight and get some vengeance and that's what i wanted to do i joined the army to fight Mm -hmm. the reason i got out because there was no fight to be had if there was a war if there was something going on i would have been in it yeah um you know I, i think Something important to note is the biological instinct in men, most men, the men I associate with, to fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's not it's it's to fight each other in training because that's what we do as kids. We fight and we um, we grow up in those environments where we're displaying our masculinity, and there's a whole bunch of psychological and f- physiological things that are associated with that. And I don't think. We grow out of that. We grow up and we want to fight and defend. That's what men do. Um, And so it definitely was part of my uh, character and my DNA. And I don't think it was fake. I think it was something very real and I wanted to fight so I, I had to go back in. How'd you get back in? It was a battle because the Army didn't really know how to handle a whole bunch of dudes who were prior service guys that wanted to go back in. Was there a lot of guys that wanted to come back? there was a lot of guys. During that time period, a lot of people who were prior service who had gotten out, I mean, even older guys who had gotten out, wanted to come back in and serve. So I had to go through the whole process again, which was— Holy shit. I had to go through MEPS, you know, as an E-5, going back through MEPS, um, you know— the whole duck walk thing, all that stuff. I had to go back through all that to get back in. And they had a program, which is kind of similar to what's called 18 X-Ray now, where you can come in off the streets and try out for selection. And if you make it, they'll send you to uh, uh, special forces training. And if you don't, you simply just go back to your sister unit. Or um, if you don't have a unit, whatever your job is, they'll find a job for you in, in that uh position now how old are you at this point uh at this point i'm 21 years old you're 21
1: years old yeah you just saw the towers come down yep and the only thing on your mind is i gotta fucking get back in there yep no shit i mean yeah wow that's i mean that's yeah that's a lot of courage i was young yeah that's a lot of courage so
2: you got back in Yep, I got back in and I got the opportunity to go to selection. And I did that in 2002. And I was successful. And were you, where were you at in the mix? Would you say you were top of the class, middle? I was probably about middle of the class, which is where I wanted to be. Uh, I'd always been told and grew up, you know, obviously going to Ranger school, where I, I didn't want to be the spotlight Ranger. Mm hmm. I wanted to be the gray man yeah and so i wanted to be somewhere in the middle not standing out for the wrong reasons or even necessarily the right reasons i just wanted to be middle of the pack um i'm a really good rucker i could i can carry uh a ruck really well i remember even intentionally slowing down on rucks just so i wasn't advanced as the first person running different story with my size, I'm not the best runner, but I'm a decent runner, probably middle of the pack. And so when I, when I got selected, um, I, I had confidence that I was probably gonna get selected. Um, I didn't prepare, I prepared as much as I could, but my feet were hammered dog shit. I mean, my feet were just jacked up. Um, what, um, is there anything about,
1: so selection is what you have to go through to become a, an SF guy in a Green Beret, for those of you that don't know. <clears throat> but was there one thing that you just really dreaded about selection? Like, for example, um, when I went to Bud's, the first thing that I was really worried about was the 50-meter underwater swim. I didn't know if I could make it and I was going to pass out trying, but that was the first hurdle that I was like, shit, man, I hope I make this. Is that, Was there a specific event that you knew about in selection that you were dreading?
2: Yeah, it's weird, but I was actually dreading the obstacle course, the nasty Nick. No shit. Yeah, I just, you know what? I had, I had an aversion to heights uh, when I first went into the military and... What, I've, what I recognized latter, uh, at, in a latter time was I wasn't scared of heights. I just didn't have confidence in my physical ability. So when I developed my physical ability to push and pull my body weight, I had confidence going over an obstacle. So it was less about heights and more about my abilities to carry my own weight. So if you're, you know, I'm carrying a, you know, I'm climbing a 40 foot tower. Uh, or obstacle course, then I would have confidence because I knew I could secure myself, or you know, not shake and potentially go to muscle failure and fall. So I was—I kept thinking about that. I remember thinking about that. But then when I did it, it's called the Nasty Nick, which is named after Colonel Nick Rowe, a Vietnam-era veteran who started a lot of things at Camp McCall at the training facility. Um, I didn't have a hard time. I just—I got through it. It was a lot easier than I thought thought it'd be. Um, My feet, again, were were torn up, and I had to suck it up. But all in all, it was a a fairly decent experience.
1: One piece of advice. I mean, I know you get a ton of DMs. Um, If you have one piece of advice for the kid aspiring to be an SF operator, what would
2: it be? One piece. One piece would be selection isn't, An assessment of what you're actually doing. It's an assessment of what you did prior to to doing what you're doing. Meaning, if you show up and you do a 12 miler and your feet fall apart, well, your feet fall apart, but it's because you didn't prepare three months or six months prior and condition yourself. So the only thing they're doing is assessing you. It's kind of like us for contracting where they're just assessing your resume. They're not training you. So show up prepared and ready to assess. Um, Not show up and have some expectation that you're going to get trained and build up to it. You better be ready to perform. That's solid advice. I'd say the exact same
1: thing. So you graduate selection. Where do
2: you go next? So immediately we, we go straight into the qualification course and start training and they identify what our MOS or job specialty is going to be. And they make me a, a 18 Bravo, which is a special forces weapons guy. Weapons sergeant is the title, which is an expert in, in weapons. So that's the pipeline that I started, which, you know, small unit tactics, uh, culmination in Robin Sage, Sears school, high risk, a language school, um unconventional warfare training, the list goes on. What was your favorite What was your favorite uh I don't even know what the hell to call it. Genre phase, yeah. It, the, my favorite phase and or or genre was unconventional warfare. I mean, I unconventional warfare I didn't know how they were going to teach us unconventional warfare. But when they taught us and then we went into Robin Sage, which is a pretty famous or known at least, um, field training exercise where you assimilate and you know build an auxiliary underground network of guerrilla fighters, train with them, and then operate with them. It was super interesting, man. I mean, to jump into uh, behind enemy lines into this town and interact with chicken farmers and you know gas station clerks was
1: pretty awesome. This is what fascinates me about the Green Berets is that you guys can go in in such small teams and create an entire fucking army and and do it so efficiently. And, uh, you know, when in Iraq, let's fast forward just a little bit for a second. In Iraq, when I was with the SEAL teams, we had to have a, for the most part, almost every op we did we had to have an iraqi face and the mission became FID, which is you know training uh, our uh, counterparts we had no fucking clue what the hell we were doing we're seals we're assaulters and we can't even take care of three guys yeah yeah uh, the correct way because we've never been shown how it wasn't our mission and then you guys are out there and it's the opposite there might be three of you in a whole army of people. And uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you even fucking start? How do you recruit? How do you start that? How do you gain the confidence and, and be able to
2: trust a local national? Yeah, it's a process for sure. I mean, there's a, there's a deliberate process behind it. Uh, it's never done like willy-nilly. You go in there and you have a plan on building rapport, assessing, recruiting, uh, vetting, and that process is pretty complex. It involves biometrics. It involves uh, genealogy. It involves um, tests and evaluations, psychological evaluations. It's a pretty drawn-out process. And, yeah, it's it was... Sorry, is there, like, a specific profile you're looking to start with, or...? No, it f- for sure. It, it, it's mission-dependent, right? It, because one mission, you know, if it's a 1208 and you're looking for counterterrorism guys who are... Kicking in doors and shooting bad guys in the face is different than if you're looking for, you know, assessing and recruiting patrol officers who are going to be interacting with uh, the local populace. You know, they're not going to be assaulters. So there is a tactic behind it, and then they teach us those tactics. And when they when we go into it's super interesting because when you go into Robin Sage, they. They hire op four that are military cadets, West Pointers, like all these young impressionable minds that want to be you, and then you have to uh, start them from scratch. You know they don't have a big background in it. You have to get them online. You have to build rapport. You have to break bread. Um, It's super interesting, man. Um, What a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, which I didn't realize until I was in, is foreign internal defense or even counter-terrorism foreign internal defense, which is FID, is not just a training mission, but a means to access and placement to that environment. So before the the Vietnam War started, we were in Vietnam, Green Berets were, training the Vietnamese. Uh, We ex-filled Ho Chi Minh uh, and and trained that guy before he went in and obviously took over. So it is an opportunity for us to do other things. And now that bilat mission, bilateral mission, which is you and a host nation force, is how you conduct operations. Because now you can't do it without it. Because you can't you can go in there as a unilateral package, and if you don't have a strategy behind that, you're gonna go in, kick a dude's door in, kill a bunch of bad guys, displace the environment and cause a whole bunch of issues. You have to have some host nation force to be able to you know strategically win that victory okay i want to i want to touch more on this but we'll wait until your
1: first deployment so back to selection yeah your favorite thing was robin sage so how long is selection and did you finish it without any any hiccups
2: yeah, so selection is obviously the for SFAS, Special Forces Assessment, and selection is the first thing. And then you go into the pipeline, which is known as the Q course or the qualification course. And that includes all the different phases. And I, I didn't have a hard time with anything. I, 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 you know, without sounding egotistical about it, I just got through it.
1: No shit. First um, time,
2: every time? First time, every time. I didn't have any issues. The, the hardest thing for me was learning a foreign language. And I learned French. It took me four, four months to parley Lou francais or whatever, how you ever say it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it was hard because I, I, had, I knew how to speak, or I knew how to read and write Korean, which is completely different, obviously, than, than French. Different, different backgrounds and bases. But, yeah, that was difficult for me. To be doing patrolling and small unit tactics and all this high-speed stuff, and then sit in a classroom for four months and learn a foreign language. That was the hardest part, but I got through that as well.
1: So you went. You already knew Korean, but they send
2: you. Yeah. To learn French. I was, I was a French-speaking Asian dude that deployed to the Middle East for the most of my, or most of my career. A really good-looking Asian dude. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate I mean, it. So yeah, are you. I like my cabin and like three people.
1: I know but, that's awesome. <laughs> I know. But all right, so you go. Where did you?
2: After the Q course, where do so, you go? So <laughs> it's, it's a, a cool little story, but when I joined, um, when I went into SF, they give you orders based off a of paragraph in line, which is just a, a way in which you identify what group or what battalion. They're basically, a, a, it's basically a number that assigns you to a paragraph in line that specifically points you to a direction of a unit. And I knew, I knew I was going to third special forces group, which is the group that I wanted to go to because they were the group that was going to war. And it was right down the road, right down the road from my training. I went into that group and started looking at battalions at the time, three battalions first, second, and third battalion. I wanted to know who was the best battalion. I went into first battalion, kind of poked my head in, looked at their little display cases and stuff. Went over to the 3rd Battalion, did the same. And then I went went into 2nd Battalion. And 2nd Battalion's motto at the time, I think it's still the motto, was we do bad things to bad people. Nice. And it had the the Harley Davidson outlined kind of thing with we do bad things to bad people, Bush Hogs, 2nd Battalion. And I walked in there and in a trophy case, they had this leg. It was a it was a wooden leg. Sitting in the display case with a shoe on it, and it—I w- thought it was a, a guy's leg that had served in the unit. And I got closer, and it was like a—it was a—it was a, a peg leg, basically. And I was like, "Well, that's weird." And next to it was like a five by seven picture of a terrorist laying a pile of blood with a whole bunch of special operations guys standing around him.
1: Holy shit! And
2: it was from an operation where they had killed this bad guy. And they took his leg. And then they put the leg on display from this bad guy because he he had been known as like One Leg Willie or whatever the (laughs) hell his name was. HVT, Omar, One Leg Willie. So they took his leg and they put it on display in the the foyer of the battalion. And I I said to myself, this is the battalion I need to be in. I I knocked on the battalion Sergeant Major's door and I said, Sergeant Major, my name is Staff Sergeant Mike Glover. I want to be in your unit. I want to serve and go to war with you guys. And if you know special forces, and maybe this is part of you guys too, if you want something done, you have to go out and get it. So, me asking him to be in, serving his battalion, he said, "Why? What would make me want to have you serve in my battalion?" And I told him I was high speed, I was motivated, I was wanted to go kill bad guys. He's like, "That's good enough." Shook my hand, handed me over to his personnel person gave me appointed subject and paragraph in line to go straight to his uh, battalion. I got assigned to Charlie Company, which was going to war soon, immediately in process, and went straight to war. That yeah. takes a lot of balls to knock
1: on the door as a fucking new guy yeah. and say, hey, I want in. Yeah. I want to go with you. I mean, yeah. as a leader, if I had that happen to me, I probably would have just— that alone would have been enough. And be like, I know how much fucking balls it takes to come and pound on this fucking door, and walk past my wooden leg, that I took <laughs> off that guy. Yeah. And uh, and you got what you wanted. That's fucking awesome. So were the were the boys pretty accepting when you showed up?
2: They were. Uh, I mean, they knew we were going to war soon, so they didn't have a lot of time to fuck with me you know special forces if you show weakness on a detachment if you are fucked up if you're running your mouth if you're saying dumb shit there is a likelihood that you potentially are going to get messed with um I came in hard charging squared away kept my mouth shut I knew the game Mm -hmm. I mean I played that game as a tomb guard candidate for nine months keep your fucking mouth shut, do your job, go home, repeat. So when I got to the team, I didn't have a hard time integrating, and nobody really fucked with me because they knew I wasn't a shitbag. I was there to work.
1: Were you drinking at that time?
2: No. You're i still never straight-laced. I never drank alcohol, ate sugar for the most part, or ate like shit my entire 20s. Never.
1: Wow. Never. Now, a lot of teams
2: would probably actually frown upon that. They they did. Uh, I mean, some guys did, and I didn't care. I, I I was raised this way with my mom, where I don't care about what the fuck you think about me. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to do me. Yeah. I'm more concerned, concerned with bettering myself than what your perception is of me is. And I knew there was a right answer and a wrong answer. And for me, being in special operations the right answer was conditioning my mind my body and trying to be the best I could I I thought alcohol was a liability and it 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 still is I've seen it destroy teams I've seen it destroy relationships it's fucked up a lot of people my mom my family has their own had their own issues with booze in in some ways so I I didn't want anything to fucking do with it wow I mean
1: that's It's almost part of the culture um, in a unit like that. And um, as a young new guy, what are you, maybe 22, 23 at this time? Yeah, at the time, I'm after the Q course, because it was two years, I was damn near 25. Showing up to a team who's already been to war and back, they invite you to go have a beer with them and welcome you to the team, and you say, I don't drink. I mean... um,
2: that's hard to do. <laughs> That's yeah. real hard to do. Well, I had, you know, it wasn't for religious reasons. It wasn't for an, an ideology. It was because I was always training to do something. Mm-hmm. So physically, I was always in some prep phase. So they would ask me, why aren't you drinking? Well, because I'm running tomorrow morning, or I'm doing a ruck tomorrow morning. What do you mean you're rucking? We're we're at war. We're in Afghanistan. You're going to ruck? Like, Yes. Because I'm, again, taking my life that I had prepared my entire life for, basically, seriously. Yeah. And that bugged a lot of people, man. I got a lot of hate for it, but, you know, you want to be an alcoholic, you want to drink alcohol and be a fuck-up, go fuck yourself. Yeah. I'll be here rucking and taking care of my body and myself. And, yeah, now I drink occasionally. I won't drink more than a couple beers. That's my limit. Yeah. Because I just don't like alcohol, but I, I like the social interaction. I like the taste of an IPA, but it's not something that I need, um, and it's definitely not something that I use when I was in the military. You show up to third group, and how long are you there
1: before deployment? Two weeks. Two weeks. I'm there two weeks before we deployed. So you didn't even have fucking time to get to know the team before you are in it with no. them?
2: I barely got my my issue of equipment before we ripped out and uh headed to war wow and the team didn't even have really have time to see if you were a good fit they didn't at all holy shit! yeah it was and and on top of that the senior because we we operate in twos on a detachment there's another 18 bravo who's going to be my senior he even uh, got hurt or injured so he couldn't deploy so i was going to be the bravo which is a big responsibility in a fire base in Afghanistan. You slide into the number one slot as a new guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm in charge of base security, base defense, tactics, weapons, and we were going to war. You're going on your first deployment. Yeah, my guys had already ripped out. And they, you know, they had already sent the PDSS, the pre-deployment site survey guys. And so they were just turning and burning, coming back, picking up the main body. So when I got there, it was a rush to get everything packed. Guys didn't want to be in the team room because they want to spend it with family. And then when I hit the ground, I mean, I was running. We we immediately deployed to Afghanistan.
1: How many guys are on your team, roughly? Well, I think at that
2: time, maybe 10. 10 dudes. Yeah, most attachments are light by nature of guys coming and going. And like I said, my 18 Bravo senior was go, was uh, in surgery. So he had a, to get a surgery recover. And so we deployed uh, that year to Afghanistan with uh, a, l- a little bit of a light package. What year? Uh, this was 05, early 05. So
1: that's a hot year. hmm. Um, yeah. Now are you doing,
2: are you running Indige? Yeah, part of the job is running Indige. I mean, when I reported uh, as as an eighteen Bravo, I was in charge of about one hundred and forty four Afghan commandos. Holy shit! So there are ten guy. There's Mm ten
1: SF guys running a hundred and forty four man army. Yeah,
2: and basically I was the commander of them, so I was in charge of all of them. As a new guy. As a new guy. Holy shit! Yeah, I'd never forget. He said, "Hey, your your guys are formed up, waiting on you, waiting on me." yeah you're the 18 bravo get up there and, and and be their commander because everybody else had other stuff to worry about you know i mean the 18 charlies had to run the fire base which is a full-time job of the you know base security and the actual physical structure the generators the water system everything the combo, base defense the what combo are you, guys are what are integrated. your living conditions like shit i mean tents Living Comixes? on a cot, uh, living on a cot surrounded by stacked sandbags in a concrete-ish, just mud, mud hut, OK, on the second floor of a, a little structure. So yeah. you're
1: way the fuck out there, in a, like at your own fire base. There's no PX,
2: nothing. There's no chow hall, nothing. None of that shit. Are we're, you eating local yeah. food? Mo- a lot of the time we were, or mermite or MRE. I mean we were the furthest northern fire base on the on the border with Pakistan. Uh and we had really not a lot of support. I mean the closest support was Jabad, which is still hours away. I mean, if something if something went bad.
1: So how trained up? You show up in country, you're looking you're the now the commander of hundred and forty four Afghan force how well are they trained? Did you did you guys, was there like a changeover from another, another team or are you starting from scratch?
2: No, some of them were trained up by prior ODAs. I think first group was there before us. Before that, there was another third group team. And so they had a, a little bit of training, but that's, I mean, man, when you're talking about Afghans in a rural prov- province of Afghanistan that have no education, have no aptitude, don't know how to read, write. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all relative. I mean, if there's one thing they're good at, it's jumping jacks. It's jumping jacks. And climbing mountains. <laughs> climbing <laughs> mountains and flip-flops and jumping jacks, that's their forte. You've
1: seen that video, right? Of the- Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so they're pretty green they're i mean so you take over and i'm getting a little ahead of myself but i'm assuming the first thing you want to do is figure out what they're actually capable of doing
2: um yeah you have to no matter what the the condition or the situation when you come into a new fire base or or fall into new indage you got to vet them. You got to put them through some kind of process to be able to see what their current capability is. We did that. It wasn't much. So we started from scratch. Wow. We were doing small unit tactics every single day. I was doing small unit tactics with them every single day that we weren't operating. And this would be the force. Not only this is before Afghan commando units, Afghan border police Uh, Afghan uh, national police, this is before all that. So they didn't have a job. Their job for us were, they were Afghan commandos working for special forces guys. We paid them directly cash. So these were our first line of defense and QRF if anything went wrong. So you show up in country, you gotta get
1: to know these guys, you gotta train them, you gotta figure out what their capabilities are. You got to improve those. How long do you have before boots on the ground,
2: first operation? Well, I mean, again, that's that's relative as well, because when you infill into a remote firebase, the one we were at in the middle of nowhere was surrounded by high ground. It was just a couple Americans in, in the middle of the Wild West. Mm-hmm. So we were getting rocketed. We were getting reports of attacks and all these things that were happening so we were in it we were in the thick of it already but the i mean we didn't have any time it was immediate i think we went on an op two days three days after we hit the ground immediately went and did a link up with one of the you know afghan you know seniors or afghan elders in a village And that's a movement to contact. I mean, you're just rolling, hoping you're not going to get blown up, hoping you're not going to get in a tick with the guys that you haven't vetted yet. Holy shit.
1: We're talking two fucking days. Two days. And you're out the door with them on a movement.
2: Yeah. We had no choice. How did that go? It went uneventful. We had activity, um, but nothing significant happened, luckily for us. And we just started building more rapport with them, vetting them. Training them and and improved our situation over time.
1: So you're out, you meet the village elder, you come back, you debrief. Are you happy with what you've just been handed with the 144 guys? or Are you
2: going holy shit? We have got a lot of work to do. No, I I will say, here's some just a little bit of forward history on on the guys that I train. Those same guys that I train had worked with special operations. Uh, including Special Missions Unit from the Navy Okay. prior to working with us. So there were some good dudes. And when I left that firebase, uh, a guy by the name of Rob Miller ripped into that fire base and was with those guys as an 18 Bravo from 3rd Special Forces Group when he was killed and earned the Medal of Honor, uh, posthumously, of course. And... Those men, those Afghans that were with them were the Afghans that I trained that were trained prior. And so they were squared away. I mean, they had heart. They were disciplined. They wanted it, man. They were impressed with them. Yeah, I was impressed. A good example was they instinct instinctively knew when or if there was a potential significant act going to happen called SIG Act. And they would immediately get to the high ground. And they were good about displacing themselves and then talking to the local community. Because you have to understand that these people lived in that same community. So they knew everybody around them. And they didn't want to be the guy that failed their mission and got an American killed. So they had buy-in. So, yeah, I, I was impressed with them. We had a lot of work to do, obviously. But they had a good base. And all the guys... In Nuristan Province, that I operated with, that were Afghan, uh, in the village of Naray and Asadabad and uh, Barakout, all great, great men. Did you? How long did you spend with this team? So that particular trip was nine months in Afghanistan, and that team, uh, I spent a year and
1: some change with them. I mean, nine months is a long time to get to know somebody. I mean, yeah. people get married in less time in yeah. less time than that. Do you, did you develop more than a professional relationship with them? Or was it always just, you're the commander and they're the, they're the Jundies or you,
2: they're your guys? Did you, did you get close? Did you keep in touch? Yeah, I, I didn't keep in touch with a lot of them because I knew we were going to leave and it would be difficult to retain that. I try to get close to them, but I knew there was a line. Mm-hmm. What I didn't want is to compromise the mission or the rapport building from another detachment that came in there because you know how it works. They just The button gets reset every time a detachment comes through there. People try to reinvent the wheel. And I, I heard years later them asking about me when I was coming back which is unfortunate because we should have went back. We, we should have had continuity and stayed with those specific you know, Afghanis for a longer period of time because I think that's how ultimately you win is when you, you have men that you build these relationships with and they're more loyal to you because uh, you've built the rapport that's necessary. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's also
1: got to be a good, I mean, that's got to feel pretty fucking cool that they're still asking about you years later after several teams have come in and left.
2: Uh, you must have made a hell of an impression on those guys. Yeah, I wanted to, I'm not, I'm a kind of guy where I'm not afraid to build rapport. I smoked cigarettes in Afghanistan with them. I hated it, but I knew that was part of their culture. I drank tea with them and smoked cigarettes sitting on mats like a bunch of schoolgirls talking about you know politics and the military and their families like Afghan men do. I mean, that's what they do. So I socialized with them. I hung out with them. I did a lot of laughing and joking with them. Uh, but I knew the line mm-hmm. because I still wanted them to respect me as a commander. So when I asked them to potentially sacrifice their life because they had an assault, a bunker, or or do something – um that might take their life I wanted them to do it and so I, I kind of knew the psychology of it I was just big into that so I had my limits with with them but yeah they're the greatest I mean partnered forces that I've worked with in Afghanistan Iraq Libya etc I've met some really good people did you
1: if you did you have an engagement other than base defense um or like getting rocketed or the base getting attacked? Did you have any engagements outside of uh, the fire base we with, had a few with si- them?
2: Yeah, we had a few significant events happen. Um, we got in a little tick uh, in the Coche Valley. little gunfight. We brought in A-10s. We brought in the Marines. We lost uh, MH-47. It was shot down. Or not shot down. It was crashed down. They, they It had a catastrophic failure and crashed. So whatever, $100 million helicopter, MH-47. Uh, the battalion commander for 160th was on that bird. So it was a, a big, big operation. And so, we, yeah, we did. We didn't get in, in engagements. Most of our actions, most of our activity was in the fire base, getting um, shot at, getting rocketed, and then responding to those rockets and responding to that, those attacks. How was... <clears throat> Because
1: base engagements are a hell of a lot different than outside of it when you're on a mission. Yeah. A lot, you know, base defense is almost, I mean, usually it's pretty locked down to a T and everybody knows exactly what they're doing. It's when everybody has to find cover and fucking communicate. And I mean, we don't have to go into details on that, but when you got back, were you impressed with how they performed and i mean it's always a shit show you know when when you get contacted outside of the base so
2: were you impressed with their performance yeah i, I didn't have a problem with my guys performances um they did well typically all the time operating through language barriers that's another story the lulls and time there's a whole bunch of mm mm-hmm a whole bunch of logistical things also. I mean, my guys didn't run radios. We run ICOM radios because local traffic we couldn't we couldn't give out a hundred in radios during an op with crypto. With crypto and everything else. So there were challenges. We we did a lot of basic seven eight small unit tactics in order to accomplish a lot of objectives, using flares, using smoke. No shit. Using so hand and using arm, arm signals. Vietnam's oh air yeah. Tactics. Yeah, it was. We were big on that. That's how we did most of our stuff. We did most of our. I did most of my commanding and controlling of my indige via hand and arm signals. No shit. You know, and we had SOPs for smoke, uh, four shift and lift fire, all that kind of stuff. So it was back to Vietnam. I mean, it's back to basics. Wow. Mm. What are these guys carrying? Do they have nods? Do they have helmets? At this time in the war, no nods, no helmet. We eventually evolved into that, but we, we were straight AK 47s and flip flops. Oh, man. I mean, it was we, my, our guys didn't even have uniforms. They're rolling around in whatever we can get them. I actually exploited a program uh, that was a nonprofit that was providing clothes and toiletry items to soldiers overseas and got this nonprofit to send me helicopters full of equipment to be able to outfit my Afghans with just clothes, with just toothbrushes, because wow. they didn't have it, and we weren't yeah. paying for it, so we, they needed stuff. I mean, it's so funny seeing these, these dudes running around with Harley-Davidson shirts and flannel, <laughs> flannel jackets and USA ball caps, but we had to do what we had to do.
1: Are there any field craft survival cats over there now? I hope so, man. They're better fucking. I've deep. seen them. They're they're, they're all on SF guys, but right know. on. What would you say? One of your first lessons learned after your first combat deployment, maybe your first engagement, maybe his first base defense. I don't know. What was the first? The first thing that you realized? Holy shit! Uh, we need to we need to make some changes, or or, you know, I mean, yeah.
2: The first lesson, major lesson learned. I had a major one. I mean, I I almost had a – look, as an 18 Bravo, I was in charge of the base defense plan. I made it. I wrote it. I rehearsed it with the guys. I implemented it, um, and I I would die on that. You know, that's – so it was a a huge responsibility, and I fucked it up from the get-go. I had senior guys that had been to war prior to that, you know, when I was in the Q course, they were doing invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we had guys on my, my own, in my own company that were killed the trip prior in Afghanistan. So we were vetted. You know, we had a good detachment. They let me run with a base defense plan, and I did it and uh, made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I fucked a, a lot of stuff up. One thing that I distinctly remember was I had a base defense plan, to be prepared for an indirect attack that turned into a direct or more complex attack. Because that's how you do it, right? You, you prep the objective, you get everybody's heads down, and then you do a direct assault and get inside the firebase and start killing people from the bad guy's perspective. Shit, did they fucking get in? No, they didn't get in for, for, for this particular one. But they What they were doing was hitting us with 107 rockets. 107-millimeter rockets air-stabilize themselves, so they have basically a mechanism to stabilize their trajectory. So they won't go ass-over-end and just frap into the rocks. They'll stabilize, and it will send it on a trajectory, and you could aim them off of a rock. It got shot, uh, it got aimed, and those things, they have hundreds of meters of kill radius on the back end of those 107-millimeter rockets. And they were hitting our base, like our small little base. There were rockets that were landing in our fire base. We had one that destroyed our, one of our fuel refuel, uh, fueling points. I had an SOP to get my guys out of their bunks, get their kit on, and get on the rooftops to defend against a direct assault. Well, the problem is, and I didn't learn this until the hard way, is you get up on top of a rooftop when a 107-millimeter rocket's coming in, you are putting your guys' lives at risk. And I got to a rooftop with my 18 Charlie. We were engaging. I was engaging the point of origin, which I saw where the rockets were landed with a 240 Bravo. I couldn't even affect that area. I was thinking about traversing a 120 uh, mortar. And as I was about to get off the roof, a 107 came over me and my Charlie and hit the fuel point and almost killed us. I mean, if we were on the the, the back end of that 107-millimeter rocket, it would, have, it would have ripped us in half. And they were known for killing people because the shrapnel and everything else is devastating. So the biggest mistake I made was thinking that doctrinally there was a tactic that needed to be implemented. The right answer was to keep my guys inside their bunks, at least for a period of time, and reinforce the positions with armored vehicles which we had a couple of gmvs um and and then respond that way put my afghans on the wall have them defend to the base but don't risk putting guys on the rooftop where they could easily be be taken out i mean obviously 107 is not forgiving and no matter what situation you're in you get hit directly in a vehicle in a building with a 107 it's gonna be a bad day so
1: you finish that deployment you come home What's next?
2: I get back from that deployment and Iraq was, was getting bad and I wanted to go to school. So I went to, to put my name in the hat to go to Sephardic, SafarTech, which is Special Forces Advanced Target, Reconnaissance, Target, Acquisition, Interdiction, Exploitation, a whole bunch of words and an acronym that doesn't even look look right. It's Sephardtech whatever. People call it Sephardic, and it's our CQB advanced schoolhouse for hostage rescue for direct action, uh, for vehicle interdiction. We learn all that stuff there. It's, a, I believe, an eight-week school, maybe nine weeks, so it's pretty long. And it it is the minimum qualification that you need to serve in a commanders and extremist force, which there's one of those per group, which is a, you know, a reinforced company that's designed to conduct Haas' rescue and crisis response across the world. How
1: much CQB do you have? What's your background in CQB before you show up to that school? What is the basic kind of uh, mold for an SF guy?
2: Usually at the team level, you learn, it's called CFAWIC, you learn basic CQB. Sometimes it's strong wall, I think at that time it was probably strong wall, real basic cqB uh, you don't learn points of domination, you don't learn Haas' rescue considerations, maybe a little bit, but it's not there's not a lot of it okay so at the at the basic team level, if you don't have a Sephardic qualified guy, you might not know a lot. You might okay. think you know a lot, but you really don't and and I thought I knew a lot, but i I didn't know anything I, I showed up and didn't know shit about CQB until I got there. I knew how to shoot. I was a decent shooter with pistol and carbine, but I didn't know much.
1: After that school, let's fast forward to the next deployment. Did you utilize that a lot or was it back to
2: what you were doing before? No, it was, in fact, I was in Charlie Company, 2nd Battalion. The SIF was Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion. One company designated per group. So they were right next door. So I used to see those dudes come in and they had longer hair, they had cooler uniforms, they had better guns and I wanted to be in the Sif. At that time you had to have 2 years team time to even think about going in the Sif. But I had real good rapport with my company sergeant major and he went next door to take the Sif. So he was the he, he was my sergeant it. major, he became the SIF sergeant major and you know, long story short, I wasn't supposed to go to Sif as a new guy with only a year and some change on the team. But I went to Sephardic and came recommended out of Sephardic, and so they pulled me over. I mean, I wasn't supposed to deploy to Afghanistan for another year, Um, but I went next door, and I was in Iraq a month later. I mean, out of Sephardic, from that trip, I came back, I went straight to Sephardic, which was two months. I had 30 days, and I was straight back in Iraq.
1: So you did a nine-month deployment, come back for roughly 90 days. Yeah two months of that is training, becoming an assaulter at the highest level. And then you redeploy. Yep. Redeployed Iraq
2: for counterterrorism mission, which is all CQB. Did you have any, were you married at the time? At the time I was married, but I was married young and didn't, I mean, to be honest,
1: came secondary to the mission.
2: Absolutely secondary to the mission. Uh, We barely knew each other. I mean, on the ground I had a, a couple months with her, so it was it was turning and burning. In fact, I had a hasty marriage because I had saw some dudes get killed. Killed our trip, you know, operation. I was part of Operation Red Wing that trip, and we had a couple other Chinooks that were down. We had guys that we lost in the company, so it was a bad trip. It was a bad year. Uh, a lot of Americans were killed that year.
1: It's a fucking small world,
2: you know. The, the yeah. fact that you were there, I came there right
1: after that. Which means we were there at the same time, and as we talked a couple of days ago, you you met my fucking best friend uh, who just passed away. Yeah, that's um, yeah. it's fucking crazy. You know, it is crazy. It's it a is. small world, man. But <clears throat> so you did utilize. Sorry, sidetrack there, but so you did
2: utilize that school on that next deployment. Every operation. I no I I explosively breached every other target every other night. We went out every night, sometimes twice a night, uh, going after bad guys, and it was it was a real active campaign. It was us and I believe SEAL Team Eight, and we did joint ops, where it was like uh, like two SIF guys and five SEALs, and we went out with our endage and conducted counterterrorism missions. What did you think of working with the SEALs? Um. My first impression of them weren't great because we had a few interactions with them where I'll never forget, you know, at the time I was, I believe, still in E6. I hadn't made E7 yet, but I had a uh, combat rotation behind me and I was on my second deployment and had been in training for years, had been in the military and the infantry. And so I had a background. Um, I'll never forget one of the young seals being told by one of my guys who was a senior guy. All my guys, I was the most junior guy in the SIF. A SIF, a commanders in extremist forces filled with the most senior guys in the group. I think my detachment years later, everybody made master sergeant the same time. Wow. Like an entire senior team with guys with multiple deployments. I had the least amount of combat. Guys on average had three or four rotations, and this is early GWAT. Um, he said, hey, maybe you should hang out with these guys because, you know, we could do some cross training and maybe teach you guys some things. And he said, what could your guys possibly teach mine? You got to be shitting me. He said that. And and I was humbled to the fact that a lot of my own guys were so senior and already legends in the community. Like There was already, already stories about them. And so I paid attention. And And we had a lot of experiences like that with the young seals, but some of, a lot of them weren't. I mean, Jeremy Wise, who eventually went to work for the CIA, and he was, he was killed unfortunately in a uh, suicide bombing. He was there. He was great. Uh, A couple guys that are now in um, other special missions units were working with me, and they were great. So I didn't have a, a horrible experience, but it was different. I mean, a young seal coming out of training. 21 22 Mm. and even at that time i was 26 yeah at the time uh so it was different but we got along good i mean we we didn't have problems with operating with them and we had a lot of action we had a lot of fun that rotation
1: what is your next assignment so you're at the you're at third group you go to
2: the sif what comes next another another rotation in the in the sif i mean the SIF is a grind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did three SIF rotations to Iraq back to back. Going to war, coming back, going to war, coming back, going to war, coming back. I eventually moved up into reconnaissance and uh, in special operations and became a sniper. Went to sniper school, went to free fall school, and started specializing my efforts on the long, on long gun. So, between unilateral operations, which is working with task force, the joint task force, uh, I think at the time we were working with uh, Tom Tommaso, who's a famous Black Hawk down platoon leader, and he was a, a special missions unit uh, commander. We, we operated under him and under task force 16, which is Stanley McChrystal's big, uh, you know, kill capture conglomerate of the best units in the world. Mm -hmm. We were part of that effort when we went out and crushed bad guys for years. I mean, it was a a good run of killing a whole bunch of bad guys. Yeah. Uh, So I did that for three rotations in a row. Then um, I I did go to selection, Um, just call it West Virginia Selection, to assess for use of SOC. I served in U.S. Army Special Operations Command in a couple of positions, Which was For those of you that don't know,
1: USASOC is an operational unit at the highest level. You were tier one at this point. Yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. really, once you get there, I mean, you've just
2: become the most elite warfighter in the world. Yeah. How do you feel? Well, I don't know if I was one of the most elite warfighters in the world. I I never looked at myself that way. Everybody Um, else does. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had some good experiences and some bad ones. Um, Look, Special Operations is a great community to be part of, but it's a community of the most alpha males on the planet. Um, I did have a bad interaction with my time in that organization with a couple characters Um, that were it was a personality conflict, and it's the first time in my career that I felt like achy in my chest. I had anxiety where I was like, man, what, what the fuck is going on here? Um, I don't typically tell that story because, uh, the nature of the nature of the, the organization, but I had a bad, I didn't have a bad run. I recovered from it. And, but yeah, I, it, it was that unit, that organization, um, all special missions units are operating at the speed of war, mm-hmm. which is which is a lot different when you have to deal with bureaucracy and bullshit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the higher you go, and operational units like
2: that, the more fucking dramatic the guys can get. That's hundred percent true. The guys on the the guys that I worked with were amazing. I mean, I worked with a lot of great guys and. I just got my pee spanked. I got in trouble there. Um, nothing crazy. Was it just personality conflict? It was a personality conflict. I mean, I I pissed the wrong dude off. And, you know, I learned a lot of lessons from it. Um, but I had a good time in that, that organization. Uh, got to see, got to operate, and got to do a lot of cool shit that I never would have done otherwise. And it was a real cool learning opportunity. So much... So that I got promoted at such a young age um, that, you know, I made E8 at the age of 30. Damn. Um, I made Master Sergeant at 30 and promoted the last guy on the promotion list in that organization. So, you know, I was like a point. They they promote us in like point whatever and not in a whole number. So I was like, there's 160 on that list that year. I was 159.7 no on, shit. on the list. And so I, I made master Sergeant while I was there, and I had a choice: I can go back and retrain and 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 do the job for the next 10 years, or I could do what a lot of guys do when they make Master Sergeant and become a team sergeant, which for me was the pinnacle. of a a career in special operations. To be the team daddy, to be the team sergeant was huge. So Sergeant Major, Bob Irby, who is a legend in special operations, he's known by everybody. He's, man, he's got probably more operational time than anybody in special forces command. He, He heard about me and another guy, I can't mention his name, but he heard about us. And he asked us if we would leave the organization for an opportunity to stand up a new commanders and extremist force from scratch. Meaning there was no commanders and extremist force for the continent of Africa. And he asked us if we would like to stand it up, which meant obviously working with Joint Special Operations Command, we had relationships built, rapport built. We had experience with specifically reconnaissance, special reconnaissance, uh, snipers, free fall operations. So we we said yes, and we were given uh, we were given everything we needed to be successful. Unlimited budget. We got to pick, hire, and fire our guys. Damn! And it was a, a huge, amazing opportunity to do that—to start a, a mission from nothing, where there's no uh, nobody in the company, and then build it up from scratch. And we did that
1: you've got a hell of a career man (laughs) I mean holy shit and then to to watch your face when I tell you or when I ask you what does it feel like to be one of the most elite war fighters in the fucking world and to watch your face be taken back like oh I don't consider myself to be that yeah I mean it's 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 uh I mean a lot of guys do that. I think it's ingrained into everybody and it's I mean, I can see how uncomfortable you were when I just fucking said that, but it is the truth. I mean yeah. there are not very many people that get to that level and with that much combat. And uh I mean that's fucking impressive, man. Yeah, thanks, man. So you leave there and then
2: <clears throat> what happens? so i leave and start grinding to build up this unit hire and fire a couple guys and build up a skill set for special reconnaissance in the continent of africa to be able to respond to crisis uh, that potentially happened and there was no there was no at the time organization that was covering down on africa because it used to be third group's responsibility, but because of the war, we had a change in in hands and change in responsibility. So we stood it up. It was a grind. We got validated by Special Operations Command. And that was, ironically enough, September 1st of 2012. We got validated and a week later, or September 11th, Benghazi happens. Mm -hmm. I had already been notified prior to Benghazi happening that my team and myself was going to be the first guys into Libya to run what's called a 12-weight program, which is a congressionally mandated counterterrorism program to counter al-Qaeda, which therein lies uh, the Benny. therein lies the point which is before September 11th, 2012, I had already been identified, we're going to go in there, stand up a counterterrorism force to counter Al-Qaeda. So it's often been said that, hey, oh, there was no threats there. There was threats, there was bombings, there were shootings, there was attacks on on, uh, uh, the UN, foreign nationals, uh, uh, embassy staff. So I was getting all those intel, sit reps, before that happened. And then obviously that happened and it changed everything. Where were you when that happened? Ironically enough, I was back in a special missions units compound, doing a cross talk brief with basically a key leader engagement with the team lead uh, from team Libya that had been designated and me and the other guy from my unit because we were former unit members of that unit we were there doing a crosstalk. Uh, I'll never forget I went I went there and met up with the J3 which was a at the time a, a colonel and he told me last night this just happened and this is what's going on. And so I I stayed an extra few days to assess the situation and to get tied in because at that point it was my unit's responsibility to react and respond outside of obviously the primary main effort that unit that i was in's responsibility of of, uh responding to that crisis
1: so was this happening was benghazi happening real time when you found out yes yeah it was happening real
2: time it had it had it was it had it was still active and it was still happening and i was watching on isr things things unfolding jesus christ yeah
1: is this what ultimately led you To
2: separate yeah so that's exactly right long story short I deployed to Libya soon after that and stood up a 1208 program and we had all the right things done to go after the guys that were responsible for the killing of uh, the four personnel that were killed in Benghazi you know, Ambassador Stevens, Smith, and then Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods. So we went there. I was deployed there for over six months. I busted my ass and tried everything I could to uh, kill or capture those guys with obviously other special operations units that were there, and one other special operations unit that was there. And we offered up a full platter, kill capture, bilateral mission, unilateral mission, whatever you want, we'll do. And we were told that the political climate wouldn't allow for it, so we're not going to do anything. Yeah. And so uh, let's just say I was disgruntled when I came back. I had a lieutenant colonel that I was co-located with that was a reserve officer from AFRICOM who was a fucking piece of shit, who was drinking every night, getting drunk, who didn't give a fuck about the mission, who was making excuses every single day about not wanting to work, not wanting to do the op. And so when I get back I said, Go fuck yourself. God and I are you got out. serious. Yeah.
1: You know, I know I know how fucking tough that can be. I mean, I did I didn't watch I didn't we didn't have Pred feed or anything like that. But to watch an event going down, I mean that's one of the most when you know you can fucking help, it's one of the most helpless feelings in the fucking mm-hmm. world. And I've experienced that as well. Uh, we were working with a foreign counterpart and uh should have been on that fucking up, but uh, we weren't and their helos went down and we listened to the entire thing on the fucking radio and and then we saw them when they got back and uh I mean and the event that you had to you know stay on the sideline for is I mean yeah I could see how you could be that disgruntled I mean, you got out with 18 fucking
2: years in, right? Yeah, yeah. Two years to retirement. Yep, yeah. I got back. um, I did get recruited by the CIA at the time. (coughs) They recruited me for a job, um, and I had finished my college degree, my bachelor's degree, the year prior to that. So that was a prerequisite to become a staffer uh, for them. I came back with the anticipation of doing that job, but the sequester happened, which was a stop loss on all, or a hiring freeze on all jobs. So I wasn't able to do that job, uh, which kind of fucked me up, you know? I was prepared to do that. So I transitioned off active duty and then went into the National Guard component where I took a team in Texas, a 19th Special Forces group, and was just waiting on the word waiting on an opportunity let's rewind a little bit
1: here so you you separate from the army finish your degree how long do you go from your last day in the military to
2: CIA so the contracting side mm-hmm six months that's more. it six months yeah
1: six months did you even want to give being a civilian a shot, or you
2: just couldn't wait to get back over? Or Well, my anticipation at that time was I only wanted to do one other job, and that was to be a paramilitary operations officer for the CIA. Okay. That's it. The first casualty of the war, the global war on terror, was Michael Spann, and he was a former Marine officer and a member of— uh, that job and position so i wanted to do that i was ready to hang up my life meaning my personal life and everything else to just stay at war yeah because that's what i wanted and i was chasing the rainbow a lot of guys i mean, yeah i was I, I was there in libya seeing those dudes uh operate and was like you know what man i want to be part of that I, these guys are squared away they don't seem to be dealing with a whole bunch of bullshit and that's what i'm going to do if i can't kill bad guys in special operations then i'll get out and kill bad guys somewhere else and that's that was what my thoughts were at the time that's funny how that
1: mindset just goes across the board because yeah. that's one of the reasons i wanted to go um and not a whole lot of people actually know that about you i really in tune with your following on instagram i'm really in tune with your youtube and uh and your eight social media channels that you have under (laughs) fieldcraft plus your personal and you never fucking bring that up not a whole lot of people know that you jumped over to cia and then uh which is where where we met yeah so and i'm really curious to hear what you have to say What was your first impression? I mean, you go through training. Let's breeze through that. But you show up in country, your first deployment with the
2: agency. What's your first impression? So the reason I did that job is they gave me that job as an interim from my staff position, which would have been paramilitary operations guy. So I I did that job thinking it was a temporary thing. Thinking it was only going to be a rotation or two until I got the call. When I showed up, I realized really fast that all the things that I'd thought about the those positions and then the the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow didn't exist. And they were dealing with shit just as much as I was. And so... I started realizing that the job I was in wasn't that bad. In fact, it was pretty decent. I mean, it's, you know, without getting into too many details, there was an operational relevancy to it, which made me feel good about what I did for a living. Good pay, good experiences, and not a lot of bullshit. I mean, you kind of change your scale of bullshit when you go there, right? Mm -hmm. But I had just came off active duty where I dealt with a lot of bullshit, so it wasn't that bad. And so for the first time, I think I was pretty happy with what I was doing. Um, The the operation ops tempo was, was decent, and the rotation schedule was good. Were you at a flagpole? I wasn't. Oh, you went, okay. I went straight to Yemen. Okay.
1: Yeah. Where we met. Where we met, yeah. So that was your first appointment yeah so uh what was your impression of the guys of me what was your impression of me
2: you know what's crazy is people ask me that obviously a lot of special operations guys ask me that the best dudes i've ever met have been in that job because one because i know because of the vetting process that they're the best shooters in the world Mm -hmm. even better than my standards in special operations yeah. I mean, I've shot with the best shooters in the world in special operations, and then I get to this job, and I was super impressed by the standards. The shooting qual is the hardest shooting qual in the government. There's no doubt about it because I've been to f- the firearms instructor development course at Camp Perry to, to vet the hardest and most difficult courses. Outside of the U.S. Marshal, um, outside of the U.S. Marshal Service, Uh, the air marshal service it was it is the most difficult qual so having that confidence that these guys are vetted qualified to be where they're at and that the myriad of backgrounds and experiences are brought together i thought it was real cool man yeah i was super impressed you're always going to have a dude here and there but for the direct hires that i operated with the independent contractors there's nothing bad I could say about any of them. You know, some some of them are quirky and weird, just like we all are. Yeah. But operationally wise, or operations wise, the best I've ever worked with. Well,
1: that's cool to hear. Did you find it one of the biggest struggles that I've that I had working there was the integration of tactics? All because you're working with all the best units from all the mili- from all special operations. Everybody has their way of doing shit. Everybody thinks their way is the best. Some guys like myself can shut the fuck up and learn new ways and realize, hey, you know, this is what we have to do. And this is, I mean, we have to be uniform if we're gonna work together. And then there's, you know, the other crowd that they can't let go of, you know, their specific or their unit specific tactics. Where did you fall in that spectrum?
2: I try to strike a good balance. Um, I did have recent GWAD experience and tactics, and you know how that is. the The further displaced you get from the war, there's a whole bunch of different tactics that change. Mm-hmm. So I was heard, you know, when I brought up things. But I, tr- but I also try to be very careful about it, one being a new guy, but two understanding that as long as the tactics worked, there could be a different way to, to skin the cat I mean there, there were there were things that I didn't necessarily agree with but there are going to be different viewpoints and tactics but if it works and doesn't violate security I'm, I'm okay with that so I, I had a better easier time and like I said I, I needed that job yeah. I, had, I had gone I was transitioning you know obviously off of active duty I needed that job and I needed I needed to be in a good place in that position Um, I I had just made sergeant major in 19th special forces group so going back home I had responsibilities and so I just couldn't get caught up in any bullshit I there was drama like there is anywhere else Mm -hmm. I just go to my room yeah you were a room hobbit yeah stay in my room
1: you did a lot of squats that trip I, I, I literally saw your butt rising yeah oh yeah week after week
2: two to four hours of squats a day (laughs) I had a nice ass after you did I was real nice one man
1: but so nice I mean that's cool though because I mean honestly most guys in that outfit don't have near the fucking experience that you brought to the table I mean you just we just in an hour went over your you know breeze through your military uh career and I mean, holy shit, dude, that's a lot of fucking trigger time. That's a lot of deployments. And that's a, that's a shit ton of experience. I mean, you named all the major schools. Uh, I think you left out JTAC, which we had talked about earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be hard to bite your tongue with certain things. And um, anyways, that, yeah, how
2: many, how long were you over there? at uh, uh, The agency. I did a total. Of seven trips, 6.5, because my last trip wasn't a full trip. Okay. Um, So I think before we met, I did one, maybe one rotation before that. Maybe. It's hard to piece together. Yeah, I did. uh, Yeah. So I did a total of 6.5, and my last trip was early 2016. And again, I don't advertise that experience, but I was going, deploying back into war zones between my trips with the CIA. So I was going downrange, coming back, going straight on a deployment with 19th Group. And Holy then, shit. And coming right back in. And so it became redundant and it became uh, uh, pretty overwhelming to get anything accomplished in, in civilian life. All
1: right, Mike, so we covered all of your operational career up to this point. And I want to kind of wrap that up because I'd like to move along uh, with field craft and, and transitioning and, and what you're up to now, but before we do, I want to take a call and, um, you take calls in your podcast. That's I cool. I take calls. So I met this kid, uh, maybe three years ago and he was a fucking soup sandwich showed up to one of my training courses had the fucking Delta beard, had all the fucking tactical shit, didn't know how to use any of it, fucking completely unsure of himself, just living in a total fantasy land. And he started training with me more and more and more and became really interested in actually doing the fucking job instead of looking the part. And I know you get blown up on the IG and so do I with DMs all the time of people who want to do it. Well, this fucking guy actually is doing it. He went and signed up, and uh, he's waiting for his uh, selection date, and I'm super fucking proud of him. I nicknamed him Keebler. Like Keebler the Elf. Yeah, like Keebler the Elf, because he used to have this stupid fucking beard. But uh, Those cookies are delicious, too. They're so good. (laughs) I know, right? so good. So I'm going to give him a call. He's got a question for you about... um, going through selection, I think, or and something with uh, the National Guard. So, here we go. What's up, brother? Keebler, you son of a bitch. He in a factory, a, pot, a steel <laughs> pot factory? You're in my podcast, and I got Mike Glover here. I know you got a question for him. I, I do. How's it going, guys? Good, man.
0: Cool, cool. You want me to uh, just ask the question that I sent you the text about?
1: You don't have that stupid fucking beard still, do you?
0: No, just a, just a mustache right now.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I got to grow what I can, right? Right on. Well, hey, let's hear your question. All right. Uh, so,
0: I have a question that a bunch of uh, the National Guard SF students have. Um, I mean, one that I have for myself as well. Uh, people are just interested hearing, uh, you know, how what the life is like inside of like nineteenth and twentieth group as far as contract work goes, working for the GRS while being in National Guard SF. If you have uh, any information on that,
1: which just so happens I do. <laughs> it looks like you're in luck, Keebler.
0: <laughs> I, I figured uh, I figured Mike Glover
2: might be the right man to ask. <laughs> yeah, so I I obviously did that for a living where I was doing contracting and then coming back and operating in that uh, 19th group. I was in Charlie 119 and I had a good Sergeant Major, I had a good company commander, but I was also a team Sergeant in that company before I made Sergeant Major. So the the time period in which I was a team Sergeant, I had stood up a team from scratch. Uh, We didn't have a detachment when I rolled in there I got to handpick some guys and put them on my detachment and found that, you know, operating overseas, no matter what your position was, was commonplace in, in those guard units. I mean, you're going to have a lot of guys that contract. How Half the guys that work in 19th group more than likely contract. Now, with that being said, depending on who your client is or who you contract for, is going to determine whether or not it's okay. Most of the time, I would say ninety-nine percent of the time, it's fine. There, there's no issues with it because, again, you're not doing, um, you're not doing anything during the year besides the one week in a month, and you know as long as you could try to make the two weeks a year, that's fine. A good company in special forces will work with you via the B-team operations sergeant. So if the B-team ops guy is switched on, which mine was, he's super squared away, he facilitated guys who missed their two-week, two-weeks-a-year annual training. And that was okay. He just made up for it by sending them to school, by making them do details at the schoolhouse or at the the unit. And so it's not an issue. I mean, it's just what happens. I think uh, a lot of people don't understand this about the guard component of SF. It's a, it's a s- secret and it's one of the best kept secrets in special operations. And I'll just leave it at that. It's a great organization to work for. I had a good time. Does that answer your it, question? Yeah, it, it definitely does. That's uh, that's definitely helpful
0: because, uh, over here, like even the guard liaison, they don't really have any information on that. They just kind of try to tell the guys to just, once you get to your group, be the guard bum, just go to at as many schools as possible, and try to hop onto other ODA's deployments. So I just wanted to hear from a contract perspective of it.
2: Yeah, really if you. The info. Yeah, if you're if you're a guard guy and you go to Sodic, if you go to sniper school, for example, that counts as all your time because you're activated, obviously. So just going to a school or going to some training on your off time. I was very proactive when I came back for a contract trip. I would show up and be on the clock. And hanging out, fixing stuff in the team room, training guys that showed up new. So there's always something that you could do to make up for the time on the back end. And at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. You're, if you have a federal government position or job, contractor or not, you're pretty secure in your position. The, the guard can't really fuck with you. <laughs> That's good to hear. All right, Keebler,
1: what are you doing today? Why the fuck aren't you at work? aren't you rucking right at, now?
0: I actually am at work. I'm uh, outside uh, standard security for the 18 Bravo compound. Killing the game.
2: <laughs> Hell, yeah. I remember that compound. That's solid. Yeah. It's changed a bit it's since I've been there. exactly the same. Yeah. All right,
1: Keebs. Good All luck right, to you, you. Talk to you soon. If you don't make it, don't ever fucking call me again. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. But seriously. No, I'm not. <laughs> don't, don't
0: worry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it. I've
1: had some cool mentors. All right. All right. All right, man. Later. we
0: will talk soon. All
1: right. Bye. Smart question. So that was Keevler. Yeah, that's a good question, man. So we're out of the combat stuff. We're out of the military and the operational units. You're done with your last CIA deployment. And now it's time to start transitioning, which Everyone I know in special operations dreads the transition.
2: How was yours? Oh, man. It was bad. It wasn't good. I mean, I I made a lot of mistakes. I had a hard time. Could you sleep? Nope. No sleep. Anxiety. Waking up all the time in the middle of the night, looking out the windows, staring out in the sky in tears, not really understanding what the fuck's going on with me. Trying to get through the VA process and get some help, which was failing. Uh, not having a job and just trying to grind it on my own. Uh, failed relationships. I mean, the list goes on. It was it was a fucked up experience, yeah. It's
1: always, it's always, uh, I've never heard of one that went smoothly.
2: Yeah, if somebody said, yeah, my transition was just super easy and yeah. just no problem, I'd be super suspect of that person. Yeah,
1: Is there one thing that kind of gave you, gave you, I mean, I don't really know how dark it got. We did have a conversation and you had told me, I kind of shared my experience with you on when I tried to commit suicide and then
2: you had a similar experience. Yeah. I I had a a night where, uh, you know, I was prescribed Ambien, I was drinking alcohol. And I had a pistol in my hand, and you know the best way to the best way describe to me uh, my own thoughts was the fact that you know in in our career fields, our job is to be an asset to our team, to our unit, to our country, and we take out liabilities. We we kill bad guys that don't deserve to be on the planet, and that's what we do. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, you're you're a trained killer. That's what you do in special operations. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand that, you shouldn't be attempting to be in special operations or be in it. And so we're used to taking out bad guys. Mm -hmm. And I looked at myself at that point in my life as a bad guy. I had made some really bad personal decisions that affected my relationships to, to those closest to me. I had you know, isolated myself. I was an active duty master sergeant at the tip of the spear, having a decent family life. And now I was sleeping on an air mattress in a fucking apartment by myself. Mm -hmm. I had spent that time period, nobody wanted to be around me, including my own family. Uh, I spent Christmas, all of Christmas and all of New Year's by myself inside this apartment. Drinking, and I was at a loss, man. I didn't, completely I didn't have isolated. Completely isolated. No phone
1: calls. Nobody
2: even wanted to be close to me. Jeez. Nobody reached out to me. I was completely by myself.
1: Had they reached out to you, do you think you were even prepared to take any assistance? Probably not. No, probably not. We find we most guys see that as a weakness. Yeah. Which is
2: fucking sad, but. Yeah, I fell asleep, drunk, with a pistol in my hand and a bottle of wine in another hand on the floor of my shitty apartment in Texas. Any idea what pulled you through that? To be honest, not really, I don't know. Uh, I think I just got through it because I didn't have the courage to kill myself. Um, I, I, it had nothing to do with empathy or compassion for others. I didn't kill myself because I felt for other people and they, how they would live without me kind of shit. I, I didn't want to be alive. Um, but I just didn't have the fucking balls to do it, so yeah. I didn't. And you know what? What did did help me is it was a struggle. I mean, to breathe. I was breathe like I was taking one breath at a time just to get through the moment. And I was researching all the stuff on depression and anxiety. And I read something that said that yoga helped a lot. There was a yoga studio a mile down the road that did ninety minute hot yoga. And I was like, fuck it, you know what, what else do I have to lose? I've lost everything, Um, let me just try. And so I went to a yoga class and it did help me. Like I did yoga, I sweated my ass off and walked away from that experience going, man, this actually helped me a little bit. No shit. And just in increments, small increments, one day at a time, I started to pull myself out of it. Um, I still had epic failed relationships. You know, I want to blame my crazy-ass ex-girlfriends for a lot of stuff, and they were crazy in a lot of ways. (laughs) Most of them are. Most of them are, especially the hotter ones. But it was me. I was fucked up, man. Yeah. I mean, things that, you know, civilians aren't prepared with the capacity to even understand what's happening to them when you lose your shit or your temper flares or you punch a hole through a wall. Where you just do stupid shit and say stupid shit, that, there's no context for them. So it all comes across as crazy. There's no empathy. I never got empathy for my ex-girlfriend. She yeah. never said, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this because she didn't even understand it. Yeah. So I want to point the finger and be like, fuck you for not having empathy for me, but fuck me for just being a dick. Yeah. But again, it's not our fault in, in, in a way. I mean, I, I think we should take personal responsibility for things that we do wrong. But... There's no mechanism or even understanding, back then at least, of what the fuck's happening to this guy. Yeah. He's an elite special operations guy. It was everything going for him, and he's falling apart. And it, I simply just started to, to realize that like, when you take a dog of war and you let him off the leash and he bites and he attacks and he has one condition, which is operating at the speed of war... Then when you come home, you can't expect him to sit on your fucking lap and be a house dog. So there is a a new reconditioning that needs to take place, and it's a process. People who don't understand as spouses that there is a process, it's a failed expectation. You'll fucking lose every time, um, and that process might not ever go away. Yeah, you know, I hate the spouses that. Make themselves feel like victims because of what their their veterans going through. Everybody goes through trauma in some some form uh, or fashion, but I don't want that to define who I am at my core, because mm-hmm. I know I'm a good man at my core. But I know I've made a lot of poor decisions based on the trauma that I've, exper- that I've experienced. Yeah, and so it's a, a daily fucking effort and campaign just to make sure that I stay squared away.
1: I think a big struggle, too, is, um, you know, um, there's a lot of things going on uh, during, especially at the beginning of a transition. And I think one of the first things that sets in for guys, I know one of the first things that set in for me was it's when you realize you're just a fucking human. You know, I mean, it's. You're not a god anymore. When you're at the SEAL team, when you're at, you know, uh, you know, the SF team when you're when you're at the agency I mean you have this this sense of like who you are and you're unstoppable and all the shit that you've been through and all the operations you've gone on the gunfights everything you're I mean you're at the pinnacle of it all and then when you come out you realize you're just as fucking human as every other motherfucker walking around this earth and that is very humbling did you
2: I mean did you feel that absolutely I mean one society's not prepared for us no they they don't they don't know how to they don't know how to uh, deal with us just like they didn't with Mac V guys in Vietnam after Vietnam or post even World War II a lot of men that come back from special operations and have these experiences can't replicate that in civilian life so there is a, a complex where we think we're gods because we're identified as operator, we're identified as sniper, we're identified as all these high-speed things that are relevant in our communities, but irrelevant in society. You want to s- assimilate in civil society, no one gives a fuck that you're a sniper. No. In fact, in civil society, you're a liability mm-hmm. because you're fucking crazy or... Oh, sorry you went to war, man. That must have been a tragic thing. And so they're they're definitely not prepared, and I don't think we are taught that to re we have to re-identify ourselves and redefine purpose. Purpose for me in the military was killing bad guys. Mm -hmm. That's the only drive and purpose that I had. I woke up every morning even as a leader in special operations, if I don't kill bad guys, I'm a failure. It, whether that's kinetic, proxy, directly, killing bad guys was my job. Yeah. How does that translate into the, the civilian sector? You know, Not very well. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> Not very well. But um,
1: So something pulled you through all this. But before we get to that, I have another question that I want to ask you. Would you want, after everything you've been through, I know you wouldn't have changed a thing, so I'm not going to ask you that, but you do realize now the toll that it took on, on your personal life and, 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 and you as a person. What would you do if your son told you he wanted to
2: become a Green Beret? Would you be for it? I, I would support him but I, I would try to convince him otherwise. I I don't think, I had expectations of how it was going to be and then I experienced it. And the toll that it's taking long-term, I would never take that back for myself mm-hmm. because I earned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, I earned it. But looking at the full process and journey and the toll it takes, I wouldn't want to do that to his family. I wouldn't want to do that to his loved ones, his family, his friends, to to his mom. I would uh, try to convince him otherwise because, one, some people think it's their only option. But two, there's nobility in it. Some people think that selfless service and sacrifice is the noble cause. And that's okay. I get that. I get selfless sacrifice. But there's so many other things... That are broader where you could affect change and have a greater impact outside of the military i i didn't realize that until recently until doing what i'm doing now and i realized that i I probably couldn't do what i do now if you weren't a seal when i wasn't green Beret. nobody give a fuck Mm -mm. but because we are it's set a foundation so i don't know i'm torn with that but more than likely not it's a tough call i want my kids coding at the age of five I want them to be uh, entrepreneurs by the age of 10 because I know that entrepreneurship, because I grew up in it, entrepreneurship is the only single way to a means of controlling your own destiny, literally. Yeah. Not figuratively. Not like, I got this. No, you got a boss. You don't got shit.
1: Interesting. I think most guys are the same. You know, they... um I think they would say the same thing. I, I would, and uh, the shitty thing is, is everyone I know in that community is stubborn as a son of a bitch, and uh, nobody is gonna fucking talk him out of it. But I just was curious, you know.
2: I have an expectation: my son will go tell me to fuck myself. Good, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't fight him on it. Is what I mean. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. There is no contingencies for me, and there's no resentment for me you do what you got to do son do you but let me give you the advice and you could take the advice or you could flush it down the shitter or the real
1: you know i mean when i talk to younger the younger generation that's coming up and 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 they want to do that i make sure they do realize as much as possible what the other side looks like Mm -hmm. it's not all the fucking glory that that everybody thinks it's not like it's not like Hollywood depicts. Yeah. Not at all. But all right, enough about that. So, Fieldcraft Survival. You guys fucking do all kinds of stuff. I've seen Fieldcraft talk about the keto diet. I've seen them talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, grappling, tactics, shooting, obviously survival, overland mobility, Am I am I missing anything here? There's probably ten other things. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's impressive that you're in all these different spaces and you're and how many people you're impacting. What was the, what was the kind of the first what was the first space that you entered in in fieldcraft and why did you do that?
2: It was survival. It was, modern survival as i define it which is being prepared for a modern world you know bushcraft is is really interesting and really cool but it's the e and the pace plan of contingencies it's the emergency if you're running you know i always tell people if you're rubbing sticks together naked in the woods you fucked some stuff up you've you've taken 10 steps prior to that and fucked it up so in modern survival we focus on the core principles of modern survival and beginning, in the beginning, it was, I've been to every SEER school in the military. I've been to peacetime detention. I've been to covert comms. I've been to restraint defeat. I've been to high risk, two versions of high risk. I've been to the, the uh, agency's uh, SEER school. So I have a good understanding of the doctrine and then the training methodology behind it and figured I would make a kit, survival kit. That allows you to survive for 72 hours because that's the period of time in which the average catastrophe unfolds where whether that's being displaced from an urban to a rural environment, getting out of a bad natural catastrophe, uh, surviving a a period of time, that's, that's usually around 72 hours. So I made a survival kit starting out and then we started doing modern survival training courses that focused on the psychology. No shit. Instead of focused on just the skill set. Psychology is so much more important to understand and understanding how it works, meaning how resiliency works, how survival works. And so I started studying uh, case studies on why people live and why people die and formulated a training plan based off of that. And then, you know, stood up Fieldcraft Survival under under that methodology.
1: We didn't, I don't, We didn't talk for... After that deployment in Yemen, we didn't we didn't keep in touch at all. We didn't really get close to that deployment or anything, and then I'm going through my transition, and I see I'm watching Fox News, and all of a sudden I see fucking Mike Glover pop up on Fox News, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't even know your real name at that point, <laughs> and uh, I was like, holy shit, I know this fucking guy and uh that's i looked you up you know and um i saw a field craft and i saw your personal ig and and i was like holy shit! and then i started following you more and more and one of the things that i really like about what you guys are doing in the tactical space is you just fucking have this way of keeping it real and there's not and you keep the the tough guy bullshit attitude out of it which makes for the perfect learning environment but you keep everything very realistic you're not out there fucking dancing around like an idiot um you're focused on shit that works and that can be that can be kind of tricky in this space because everybody's looking for the circus the shit that looks cool and you've created a successful training business without ever getting involved in that shit. How did
2: you do that? You know, what it is is, it's kind of what I've done my entire life, where I'm not worried about popularity. I don't give a fuck about flashy shit. I just don't care. I've never been that way. I grew up poor, and I didn't have a desire to pretend like I was rich. So, I didn't look at what most kids look at on social media, which is popularity. Mm -hmm. They look at likes, for example. Likes is not a metric to success. It's a metric to popularity. They're two different distinct things. I'd rather have 100 likes on a post from 100 people who are willing to train and read my content and take things seriously in survival and preparedness than have 25,000 likes of a bunch of nerds just geeking the fuck out over a picture ...of something that looks tactical. Yeah. I never give a fuck about that. And I also don't give a fuck about... ...teaching people things that are unrealistic. I know statistically... ...that cardiovascular disease and cancer... ...kill more people than anything on the planet. Um, so yeah, you're less likely to be in a gunfight, gunfight. So maybe instead of focusing on running and gunning... ...unrealistically on a flat range shooting still and paper... ...I'll instead focus on the basic skill sets of gun handling skills and safety and the fundamentals of marksmanship because I want to make sure the guy or gal who leaves my course could draw their pistol safely and engage a threat realistically than fucking run around with a pro mask on looking like a fucking operator when you've never operated a day in your life. Like I hate, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of it because at the truth and core of it, we all have choices and options and I get the customer's going to go where they want to go. But like I said, I have my tribe and people who follow us and people who buy shit and train shit. I'm good with that. I'm not interested in being the fucking, the Walmart tactician, not interested at all.
1: I mean, that's cool because you're also at the same time, you're you're looking for a particular customer, client, student, whatever you want to call it just by saying that. And uh, I think that drives a lot of the, 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 I call them the end of the world fantasy people to the other. They don't want to do the fundamentals. They don't, a lot of them, you know, they just want to come out there and get a fucking picture of them wearing a bunch of shit that they don't know how to use. And they don't want to put the time and the effort in to actually become efficient with their equipment <clears throat> and um how long did it take you to kind of like figure that out who i mean w- when you jump into the tactical space you get all kinds of you get all kinds of people that want to train you got the the guy that just wants to protect his family and church you got the all the way to the opposite, who's secretly fantasizing that he's going to be shooting zombies on his fucking rooftop. How did you figure? Well, how long did it take you to figure out what all the different
2: uh, profiles that want training in this space? Well, I knew the way I would attract the right people was by doing what we do, which is being real, which is which is uh, uh, having realistic expectations of training, and that... Uh, trying to build a business off of a gimmick. Everybody everybody nowadays come to the table in a business plan with a gimmick. And my mom raised me in business to, to understand that hard work, discipline, and your ethic is what's going to get you to the top. And maybe that's one slow step at a time, but that scales... More optimal for me because it doesn't deviate from my values. So, just putting out that would attract the right people, and it has thus far. Um, we've we've grown slowly over the last uh, few years, but I'm okay with that, man. I'm I'm okay with slow growth. Yeah. A lot of these kids are living in fantasy world because they want to be somebody. I feel sorry for them. They want to be something significant, and so they use their social media to to uh, virtue signal to the world that there's something they're not. It's called emulation. It's what emulators do. It's what we did just in a different way. I mean, I used to read Mac V. Sog books, sniper books from John Plaster, Carlos Hathcock, all those guys. And when I read those books, I went in the woods and I pretended. But I did that when I was a kid, not a fucking adult. (laughs) And these guys are fucking grown-ass men LARPing on social media without... The deliberate plan to do something significant. Yeah, uh, I always tell these kids who, who ask for advice, I'm okay with giving you advice. I'll give you free advice all day, as long as it means something at the end of the day, not just you uh, perpetuating a feeling. Because you tell your friends at the bar that, yeah, yeah, you're you're try, trying out for special operations. And then two years later, you're still sitting on your ass in your cubicle. Your authenticity really comes through on your lives and, and everything else.
1: And I think A lot of people are really, really drawn to that, especially uh, nowadays, more than ever, with all the the phony shit on social media. And, uh, I mean, all of your branches of field craft
2: just seem to be growing very steadily. What's next? Next for us is partnerships with good companies that represent preparedness and survival. I mean, we all have different genres. You know, whether it's 511 Tactical or BCM, uh, people have their narrow field, fields of fire. But we want to partner with good businesses and develop better equipment that helps people survive. There's a whole bunch of deficiencies in the game because a lot of companies are focused on the wrong priorities, in my opinion. I agree with you so on that. We're, we're gonna fix. we're going to try our best to fix those. And then continue doing media, man. I, I, I love the media thing like you do. I mean, this being your first podcast, I, I love podcasts because it gives opportunity to, to hear a long-form version of somebody's experiences instead of clickbait. And so I, I'm more interested in doing versions of that instead of doing shorter versions of clickbait. Uh, I do have a plan to write a book. I, I've written four chapters of it. It's probably one of the hardest things I've done technically. Um, looking for a publisher or an agent to get that knocked out because I realize I'm a good creative writer, but in 300 word increments yeah. on Instagram, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, in a, not in a 250 page book on my on uh, mindset or or survival. So yeah, man, we just we're continuing to grind. We got mobility coming out. I, overlandtraining.com is a domain uh, that I've licensed from Overland Journal and Expedition Portal, who are the OGs and Bosses and and overland, so if you guys want to do overland training with us, overlandtraining.com, I and mean, we got a whole bunch of shit going on. We're training all over the United States. I'll be in Texas in January. Um, my guys will be in Cal- I'll be in California in January. I'm, I'm all over the place, man. It's a it's a grind that I'm in love with. It's something that I'm passionate about, and um, I've been in it for four years, and it's it's just something that I'm prepared to to maintain i'm in it for the marathon the 50k or the 100k i'm not in this for fucking a a wind sprint
1: i heard you say i heard you say on another podcast that you never made it about money and i have not heard very many people in business say that and i always say that too which is another one of the similarities that uh when, when you came up here do you think that really helped you With your business by not making it about money
2: and making it about growing. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. We all, we all have our incentives, and it really shapes your behavior and your pattern of life. If money, you know, I I love these people who come out and say money is not uh, important to me, and. They fly in G6s. They buy Lambos and show the world they have Ferraris and and, and materialistic shit. I don't fucking care about any of that. I, re- I literally don't. I have a couple sentimental things that are more likely rocks and war memorabilia, but that could burn to the ground. I care more about people. Yeah, And it's not a pitch. I've always been that way. I've always been in the military willing to sacrifice my time um, my efforts and potentially my life for people. So coming out of the military, that didn't change for me. I, I didn't, you know, some people I've seen, I've seen this happen. It's directly affected me where motherfuckers come out and they get a little taste of what they think is popularity and it changes who the fuck they are. Yeah. That never interested me because I'm not, I never cared about popularity. I played uh, high school football. I was a popular kid in school, but I didn't give a fuck. And so I didn't, I didn't wear my ego on my, on my shoulder. So when I make it about people, it changes the, the priorities, whereby the bottom line for me isn't the profit margin. The bottom line is taking care of people. And by default, and this isn't, I mean, you could look at it in books as a marketing tactic or a business tactic, um, but it has to be genuine. Mm-hmm. And so when I make it about people, people take care of our company. People buy our swag, they t- attend our training because they believe in the mission because I've made it about the mission and not about a, a bottom line in marketing. I, I see good companies doing great things and then charging people, fuck man, $500 for a bag. Like, what? Like, what are you, what are you even doing? Mm. Um, I remember I dropped my one of my mobility bags and I sold it for 200 bucks. Uh, it cost me sixty seven fifty to make that margin is low in textiles. I mean, it's low. After all the shipping, receiving, the, all the labor, the overhead in the building, electricity, et cetera, you're looking at an additional bag, a 50% pro- profit margin. Dude, that's no money to be made. Yeah. So people bitched about it and people complained. So I lowered the price. I even had that thing for 99 bucks just because I knew I wanted to make people happy. Now that's my downfall too. Yeah, my downfall is um, I'm not always looking at the numbers when in business you should be. You should be looking at the numbers. You should be paying attention to the numbers. But incentive-wise, what should drive your behavior and what should drive your uh, your business should be for the right reasons, and that for me is people.
1: In field craft, you guys, it seems like you guys do a lot of prepping and uh, are masters of it, and I don't know about you but a lot of the clients that I've had think that there might be something they need to prepare for. So I don't know about fieldcraft but I have a feeling our our clientele are very similar uh because we're both realists and I would say the majority of my clients, not all of them, but the majority of them think that they need to be prepared for something. And you guys are big in the prepping world as well. They think something might happen, not necessarily the end of the world, but they just want to be ready in case of a natural disaster an EMP. There's a thousand different scenarios. What would you say, for somebody that's completely green, they don't know how to shoot, they don't own a gun, they don't have food storage, anything, what would you say the number one priority would be? Where do they start?
2: The number one priority for me is personal defense because, you know, uh, the first principle of patrolling is security. And if you can't secure yourself, you can't secure your family. You can't take you can't defend your life you can't defend your family's life so i would say it starts with a personal decision to buy a firearm learn how to utilize a firearm and carry that firearm daily what firearm would you suggest starting with pistol or rifle i, I think universally you know i carry different guns for different reasons but universally a glock 19 is probably the staple concealed carry pistol um in contracting, we carry Glock 17s typically, but Glock 19s are, is the right frame size for most. It's the right size frame for concealment. It has the most accessories per gun uh, in the industry. Uh, it, it's a good platform. It's reasonably reasonably priced. And I've used a Glock 19 when the military got them in special operations, and I've seen them. I've seen them throughout my military career, and I've never seen one fail so a single action only Glock 19 is is the start point
1: I would definitely agree with that <clears throat> it's like the Toyota Corolla of handguns yeah absolutely they just never fucking die yeah 100%. <laughs> but um and then so next would be so you would say pistol and then
2: move on to rifle No, the next priority for me is med, med, med. Absolutely. 30,000 people a year die in vehicle accidents. I wonder how many of those could have been prevented. I mean, 400 idiots a year fall out of their tree stands and hunting and break their legs and do dumb shit. So we're prone to accidents. We're prone to uh, trauma. And I've, I've treated trauma in real life. I save people's lives with tourniquets, tourniquet which is a $29.99 piece of equipment from North American Rescue, which we sell on our website at fieldcraftsurvival.com, is the number one piece of equipment that, in med that you need to carry. Stopping an extremity wound, a traumatic bleed from a, a femoral or brachial artery is, is life-saving. If you don't do that, you simply just go to sleep and die. Are
1: you guys teaching meds?
2: We absolutely do, yeah. We teach TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care, which we were required by our contract to train. We teach a course, certified TCCC course, through NAMT, the the, the certification on uh, tactical med training, trauma training. I just taught a CPR lifesaver course at my uh, Tribe Expo recently. So we, we frequently teach med, and I expect... That if in contracting in austere environments, we are required to carry a tourniquet um, based on our own understanding of what we could run into, that a civilian should do the same. Whether that's in your inside your waistband, because we do sell inside the waistband tourniquet holder, or that's inside of a bag or inside your vehicle, somewhere within arm's reach, where if you're experiencing trauma, you could save your life. Interesting.
1: What... So number three, what would the number three thing be?
2: We got pistol, we got med. If we're talking uh, equipment-specific things that you need to carry, um, uh, the next piece of equipment would be the way in which you carry it, which would be the bag in which you carry. A lot of people don't think about it, but the extension of your capability of what you can carry on your person is limited. Mm -hmm. You can only fit so much shit in your pockets and your pants. And if you have a bag meaning an everyday carry bag, that might be your purse, your MERS, your European man satchel. It it sets you up for an extended capacity. That's how we look at vehicles. I mean, if I have a med kit in my back pocket that's a minimalist, you know, uh, low-vis med kit, well, I want my fucking car to be an ambulance. I want there to be enough med equipment to treat my family, myself. Uh, And then you upgrade that to your house as well. I want a damn hospital at my house. So... Having the ability to carry all their stuff is super important. And in that bag, I would definitely include uh, a survival kit, a modern survival kit that that has the staples of survival, including the ability to contain water, purify water, start a fire, um, signal, um, communicate potentially, sat, iridium, VHF, UHF, uh, the list goes on. Gummy fairs. Gummy bears at a, you know, that are fat-free that have lots of carbs, lots of sugars, lots of calories. They're survival bears. That's what we call them. <laughs> They're survival bears. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Mike, I know you got a flight to catch, so I'm gonna wrap this up. But I just want to say, man, I'm. I had a great fucking time. You came up, and I didn't. I didn't know how this was gonna go. We hadn't seen each other in six, seven years, and, I mean. I think we think very parallel on a lot of things and and uh it was a great time we made some great content i can't thank you enough for coming up here and it's been awesome watching you grow and watching Fieldcraft grow and i i can't wait to see what comes
2: in the years ahead so thank you for coming out thanks for having me man i'm looking forward to hearing your podcast and seeing what you guys have in the future i mean you you're you're one of three youtube channels that i watch the other two are mushroom youtube channels um foraging for mushrooms you do love some mushrooms i love them i love them (laughs) and so yeah man I, i appreciate you guys having me out and you know open your doors to me and and it's rare for me like you to get out and when i do go out it's only for specific reasons or specific people and um, you guys are some really good people doing some really good stuff, and I look forward to doing more with you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I hope we can do this again sometime. Real quick before we uh, hang this up, where can we
2: find you? We're all over social media, obviously. Fieldcraft Survival Fit, Fieldcraft Mobility, Fieldcraft Survival, uh, mike.a.glover on my personal, Philcraftsurvival.com, uh, overlandtraining.com. Uh, if you if you need to find us, just Google us. You'll you'll find us. Um, we have a podcast on iTunes called the Phil Kraft Survival Podcast, and we also have a podcast called the Modern Mindset Three Six Five Podcast, uh, which is all about mindset. So yeah, definitely hit us up and look us up.
1: You heard it. Look them up. I think you should open another profile called Magic Mike. But Magic Mike. But uh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. But. All right, thanks again, man, and um, we'll see you guys soon. we got a jet to the airport.
2: Cool. Thanks, guys.
0: Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new
2: Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort, delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted
0: auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at woodhousechryslerjeepdodge.com.